Welcome to Laugh Your Cry Out, the podcast that features unfiltered conversations about our collective mental health and where we make it easy to talk about the hard stuff. Nothing is off limits. After listening, you'll walk away smiling about the plight of being human and maybe even learn a bit about yourself. I'm your host, Joey Dumont. Let's dive into today's episode. I want to thank you for writing this. Letters to my white male friends. Uh, Dax Devlin Ross is a friend of mine who was introduced by one of my dearest friends, Leo Bolero. And uh, it's been over a decade now, probably, since we were introduced to each other, right? And we haven't talked for years. Yeah. And you wrote this book. I saw it on Facebook. Yeah. And then I reached out to you. Actually, I reached out to Leo and I said, I don't have Dax's (laughs) stuff anymore. Can 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 you hook us up? And part of that reason... And let me start with your credentials before I forget. You are a uh, diversity, equity, and inclusion consultant. One you are in the world. Yes, you are a. You went to undergrad and studied. What did you study in undergrad? I studied uh, philosophy and English. Okay, so I, I had a double major in philosophy and English. And where did you do your undergrad studies? I studied at Rutgers University in beautiful city of New Brunswick, New Jersey. Yes, you did. And yeah. then, because you study philosophy, you had to go to more education. <laughs> I was like, what am I going to do with this? Exactly. And, and you went to Georgetown Law. No, and, George Washington. Uh, George Often, Washington. Like, George Washington like, Law School. It get, they get confused. The George. Yeah. Doesn't. The George I got the George part right. All right. Yeah, so, and then, so that's kind of where this came to me this i was like okay i gotta talk to this dude because as i kind of shared with you and we haven't talked because we wanted to do this on camera i i wrote a book that was published in april and a lot of it had to do with i mean it was called joey somebody the life and times of recovering douchebag and what i want to do and it's as it's follow-up because i've been a stay-at-home dad for four years now and i'm going back to the corporate world sometime next year and so what i've been trying to figure out is like what am i going to do with my life i ran I helped run ad agencies for about 20 years. It was a wonderful career. But what I wanted to try to figure out by writing a memoir was a little bit about myself and the introspection necessary to do that. And then with the podcast, it was kind of a follow-on in the sense that I'm interviewing people that I look up to, that I have uh, respect for, that qualify as subject matter experts. And in the leadership realm, and I know this just from working in the advertising, advertising business, is that you're very busy. You know, you have 60-hour weeks, you have children, you have things going on. So how is it that you grasp and talk about really complex issues? And part of that, for me, was everything from the big phraseology today, defund the police, diversity, equity, inclusion, critical race theory. All of these pieces and parts are now part of our corporate culture. I recently did a series with two professors one from University of San Francisco School of Management and one who was a previous instructor at Berkeley about the very talked about safe spaces on college campuses. Yeah. That, that was a really illuminating three hours of chats. And the same thing stands true with you. I'm trying to, as a corporate coach, I'm trying to figure out what do my clients need to understand moving forward. What does, what does that look like for them? How, and the safe space thing is relevant because the safe space itself is when 
these young men and women graduate from college. They've gone to university. And this is from Jonathan Haidt's book, uh, The Coddling of the American Mind. Yeah. A piece of that has to do with a new generation of kids that they call the iGen that was born, going into college in 19, were born in 1995 and went to college in like 2013 on. And yeah. they're now entering NGOs, uh, nonprofits, corporate landscape, education, politics. And that's changing the way that we see the world because this younger group is coming in, has a much different ideology than I did as an example coming up. And so what I'd like to do to frame this discussion is start with your book because first and foremost, it was so well-written, so much passion. And sadly, there's, I'm, I was clueless to a lot of it. And we can talk about that too, because you did a really good job of asking us questions, these yeah. folks, uh, your, your white male friends. And, and I, in my notes, I have, I've answered some of those questions for you. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So I, and, and then we can talk about that. So yeah. I yeah. wanted to kind of start out with some of the quotes that caught me as I started to read the book. And I, I've captured some of them here. No one told my white friends that they needed to be a credit to race. And comporting myself to white American standards of success to advance the race did not appeal to me. That was, most of these were like little punches. <laughs> I just wasn't used to, I was like, well, okay, I'm clueless. The book you are holding is not a handbook on how to be anti-racist. That book exists. So my first question was, which, which book were you talking about there? Because I've read three or four on this subject. What, did you have a specific yeah, book or many books? I, I think that there's many books. I think there's okay. definitely many books in that, that fall into that category. And that's not in any way to, to demean those. I think there's a huge... No, right. Some might argue that mine still does that. But I think I was trying to engage in a slightly different project, at least from my lens. But that's an important, important observation and question, nevertheless. I appreciate that being lifted out. Yeah, no problem. Because that was, I, I have read a lot of Ta-Nehisi Coates. Historically... Uh, James Baldwin, probably yeah. the most yeah. prolific writer for me that I've studied, just because his prose was so beautiful, Dude. and he he really captured no name, no name oh, of the street. Uh, is, it's amazing. Yeah, like no name <laughs> of the street is amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, just those those types of things historically I understood, and I've I read those previous to this homework, but I I reread them <laughs> after I started studying about critical race theory because specifically. Um, between me and the world that yeah. that I read probably four years ago, and then when I reread it, I was like, "Holy cow!" It kind of understanding how W. E. DeVos framed that veil between him yeah. and the world, and I just didn't understand all the metaphor because he's a poet. <laughs> so there was a lot of things that were woven into his text that I thought were absolutely beautiful, and we can talk about some of that in a bit. Um, I white I write the letters herein to my white male friends because you are everyone's target but no one's focus. You and I both know that you hold immense power, wealth, and status in our society. That power strikes fear and invokes intimidation. Yeah. Obviously, that's a really big theme you know, within your book. Yeah. And then you have, here's some of the questions, and there's many of them, but are you prepared to deconstruct the citadels that have granted you power, privilege, and authority? Yeah. Yes. <laughs> is there. And I, I'm attempting to do that with these types of chats. Will you adapt yourself and your organizations to meet the demands because they won't just be requests anymore for inclusion and equity? Yes, again. 
the bigger questions I have on that is a lot of the homework I did on what those meanings, what does equity mean, right? Yeah. That's a really question. big question that I have. I can't wait to get your answer on. Um, yeah, let's just start there. Why well, don't, that's a great way to tar- start this discussion. What do you mean as a subject matter expert in this field? Yeah. How do you define those? Because these are very difficult acronyms, right? The whole purpose is critical race theory means it's so abstract. And yeah. a lot of the homework that I was doing proved that. You'd have very different people, very different definitions depending on the right, the left, the center, yeah. right? Yeah. So what do you, as a trained subject matter expert that does this for a living, <laughs> that's another thing I think the depth of expertise bothers me. What do you define? What do you define? What does that look like to you? What does inclusion look like? What does diversity look like? And what does uh, equity look like? Yeah. So, you know, it is the case that I've encountered um, in many of the people, many of the organizations I've worked with is actually this very problem is actually uh, the core of things. What are the, we use these terms, but what do we mean? And do we have a shared understanding of what we mean? Yeah. So what I find, and I think some of that's why I think I'm glad you brought up sort of generational piece around these younger folks who are entering the workforce, because in many ways, that's what I was speaking about. There are folks who are not requesting anymore. There's a demand that's being made. Yes. And, and, and whether or not it's good or a bad thing, that's, the, that's sort of the reality that folks are going to have to sort of get used to, you know, at least for the, for the time being. What I've encountered is that when you use these words DEI, you can decide to put the B in there for belonging or the J in there for justice, these acronyms. That's a new one I heard too. Yeah. Justice was another one, yeah. EDI work, you can call it EDI work. Diversity is the one that I think most people are comfortable with and have a literacy around. Because diversity means representation. It means who's in the room. Do we have this? Can we count the number of X people here, whether it's women, people of color, people who identify as LGBTQ? Like that, the, you know, that is the number, the numerical one that I think a lot of folks, particularly, I would say folks on the older side of the spectrum, meaning who have been in the workforce longer, are most accustomed to and most attuned to, and also are most prepared to address and deal with when it comes to these issues. Which okay. is to say, diversity doesn't necessarily ask you to make any structural changes to the way you do things. It might say, it might mean you need to recruit some new places. It might mean you might uh, sort of screen applicants a little bit more to think more difficult, more think about, uh, you know, are you bringing in a certain you know, representation of the population? But fundamentally, we're still saying we're going to keep everything else the same. The status quo remains. Our structure, our organization, how we do business, how we talk about things, what we expect of folks, that isn't changing. Okay. That's where diversity sort of falls. Diversity is get people in the door. That's like the metaphor. Diversity is get people in the door. Inclusion is how you keep them there. Okay. And, you know, and equity is this thing that I think <clears throat> I, notice, I found noticeably absent until recently in corporate approaches to DNI work. So they used to call it DNI work, right? That's yeah. very, and that's very telling to me. Whereas in the nonprofit sector, it's usually framed as DEI work because that E piece is fundamentally about power. Mm-hmm. That Hold is on a, one sec. Hold on one sec. Okay, I'm back. My son was singing. <laughs> I didn't hear him though. I didn't hear him. That's good. I, I can hear him. So I just wanted to make sure it wasn't in the yeah. What did you say? Like, what do you go and say to your son when he's singing and you're like in the middle of what do you think? You used to like that. That's all I did. Like just 
I tell them because you know we live in a flat, so it's like yeah. it's not. And they're doing their homework right now, and and sometimes like I'll be on a call like this, and then they'll jump on a Zoom call with their teacher, and bah, bah, bah. I'm like, oh, dude, you got to do that in your bedroom. <laughs> so cool. I apologize. Yeah. So the DNI thing without the E. So this is another exact question. Like there's there's differences even within your own consultancy, right? Not yours, but I mean the. Yeah. The group at large. There, are people, there are folks who are focused around different parts of that work. And that's why it's really important for anybody who's seeking out uh, a, a support, subject matter expert, consultant to know what that person's area of specialty is, what their focus is. Yeah. Because I think that up to now, we've all been, we've been thinking of DEI work as a fungible good, as you know, this sort of widget that you can just sort of find, pluck it off, you know, off the shelf and kind of figure it out. And if it fails, then it's like the idea isn't that we didn't do something right internally, it's that this DEI work actually is ineffective or kind of productive. Or try. So I try to really get aligned with people at the very beginning. Like, what are you trying to achieve? Because for me, when I'm asking folks about, are they interested in doing equity work? That is, we have, when you're doing equity work, you're acknowledging that there have been, there's a, there is a history of systems, there are histories of systems of oppression that have actually been structured into many of our systems, but also have produced many of the sort of um, the outcomes that we currently observe in our society. And if you want to do equity work, part of that work is getting to doing root cause work, is getting at, at least in our sphere of influence, mm-hmm. are we addressing this historical con- these historical phenomena in the ways that we, co- we possibly can? It manifests in ways in which, like I do survey work with organizations that often ask, at the beginning we often do work where we kind of survey the organization, survey population, but I ask questions that are around decision-making, for instance, because decision-making is a place, is a site where inequity is often felt most saliently and poignantly for people, because if I feel like the work that I do in a context, I have no voice in it, I don't get to have, I don't have a say in it, that is me feeling excluded from the decision-making processes and practices, which in and itself actually can be experienced as inequity. Like, it is okay. an inequitable, it is not just that I'm not included in the process, but that my perspective isn't even been taken into consideration. And we're not, we're not challenging, more broadly, we're not challenging some of the assumed norms that might exist in how we do things. Because the how we do things has been some of the problem with the why we don't have a diversity of people in things, so in systems. So right. I, would, I would end our, your question with, with sort of my approach to the work has become more... I don't use DEI as much anymore. I try to use it. I use EID because my belief is if you start with equity and inclusion, that should drive diversity. Because if it is the case that you start with diversity, meaning if your first start, your first point is how do we get more people of color in here? How do we get more? You will probably have some challenges because there's a reason why the folks aren't there. And it's not just because you didn't intentionally look to find them. Because I often find, and I even experience this myself in workplaces, is this a workplace that actually is designed for me to thrive? Has it, have, I, have people like me been part of how we construct this work environment? Because that's where equity and inclusion become very important in terms of how we build the things we care about building so that we can create the conditions for diversity to be something that is an outcome of our work versus an input of our work. And that's a different way of thinking for people because it does require us to think about power. Am I willing to, if I'm a leader, and I've been traditionally the one who's called all the shots and decided everything, how things are going to go. Am I willing 
to approach my people in a different way. And I'll say, this is the last thing I'll say, and I'll, I'll pause after this. A few weeks ago, I, I listened to, um, to uh, Aaron Rodgers give that, give his, his like, his, when, he, when he came to training camp and he kind of held court with all the reporters in the audience. And he said, you know, what I didn't like, because this was about the, all the off-season stuff happening at Green Bay. He wasn't really consulted. You know, there was a question. He had just finished the MVP season, and all of a sudden, they're like drafting a quarterback. And people are like, is Aaron Gordon going to? Is, is um, Aaron Rodgers going to retire? But he comes and he says in that conference, and I thought it was really, really profound, and it actually created a lot of like tension between various various factions. Those who believe a sports figure is supposed to just play sports, and those who believe that a sports figure has a different role. He said, listen, I just want to be involved in the decisions that are going to affect my job. And I was like, wow, here you see a white guy. He's got all sorts of privilege in this particular environment saying. NFL team I work for and work under, I want to be in the room when you all make decisions that I'm going to have to live out on the field. Why should you be in a room making all the decisions when I have to be the one? who has to live out those decisions. And I think that's what a lot of people are saying in workplaces. So if it's this work from home, return to work business, right? People are like, so you want to tell me to come back into the work, come come back into the office. A lot of people are saying, no, I don't want to do that. And they're saying for a variety of reasons, like, hey, I don't think it's good for my health. I don't trust that it's going to be right for my health. I don't think actually that a variety of reasons, but it's it's a reimagining that's happening. And that's a reimagining of power, and a recalibration of power. And that's why we, I'm calling it, that's equity work. And it's not just diversity work there. It's equity. Okay. Our power. Anyway. I like that. And I think that also, the, what, what that speaks to, and I can only speak for my industry, because that's yeah. I don't know a lot. But in the ad business, in the advertising agency business, we are known or infamous for not having representation of black people. We just don't have it across the board. My friend Donovan, who I was introduced to in the ad business, always makes that joke. He's this highly educated, handsome black guy who outdresses everybody. And when I was hanging out with him early, and this is like the early aughts maybe in, in New York City, he was like, I'm, I'm the guy. Everyone wants me. <laughs> you know, Every agency wants to hire me because he was unbelievably good at his job. But there was just not a lot of people. And part of your book... You talk about the Wells Fargo CEO who said, you know, we just, we'd, we'd like to hire more black people, but there just aren't any. And you're like, bullshit. And, and I, I actually brought that up because that's a, that was a true concern for us that had never, and I've, I've been out of the business for four years now, but we've never solved that problem. We just haven't. And by the way, advertising agencies attempt to be diverse, not because it's moral. <laughs> I'll say that first and foremost, we would hire, Viewpoint diversity, not just color diversity or ethnicity or where it came from. Because if you're going to go pitch a brand, yeah, you have to have a whole different. You have to have a smattering of views. Yeah. And so, if you have a black person and an Asian person and a gay and lesbian person and a white person, and it then when you start to do all the machinations around a campaign, right, you don't come up with these 
tone deaf, like, like, like Pepsi when they came out with, you know, Miss Little Jenner, I can't remember her name, Kendall Jenner, yes. handing the, like, that was just, yes. that was yes. just so yes. awful. And, and you're yes. like, okay, you didn't have one black person <laughs> in that group. You didn't have one black person in your, your research. You didn't have one black person in your focus groups. You didn't have one anywhere. And, and that's an example of like, to me, where you just talked about, that's why it's important on the equity front. It just, it needs to be there so people feel included. And when someone like, you know, a professional football player of Aaron Rodgers' ilk feels that maybe for the first time. Right, like, right, right. That's, he's kind of like, well, this is bullshit. <laughs> like, right. well, yeah, it is, right? Welcome to my world, dude. Welcome so, to my, but it's what you're saying. I think to use that Pepsi commercial as an example, I think part of what I'm also thinking about is important for equity purposes that, and I think this has often happened around, um, around, well, around the black identity is that, and I've worked with a few clients whose main consumers are black people and yet they have no black people in decision-making and they don't think that's a problem. God, that just blows me, my like, mind. I'm like, so you're very comfortable just exploiting black, black, the black community as a consumer base. And you don't think that there is any role that should be played by black people in thinking about being sensitive to and participating, just basically participating on the production side of things. Right. And I think that's actually, it stems back to our history as a country, which is why I think context is important, and which I think is why we have to have conversations around critical race theory and understand our history is one in which we have been very comfortable exploiting Black people as a consumer base without really realizing, thinking about there should be some quid pro quo here, there should yeah. be some investment in that community, there should be some sensitivity and awareness and not just in a superficial and tokenizing way. I think that we have been very, we're, we're completely conditioned to, to think that capitalism just says the objective here is to make, to bring in the revenue. And if this, if this works, it's not a problem if we don't actually have, we don't have representation on the production side of whatever it is we're producing. I will say from the advertising, I don't have a ton of experience in that, but I've worked with some folks who are in the ad agency world working in the film side. Like I work with, I work with some clients on that world. And that also is a world in which there are very few black people it is not enough. Like, I think everybody's surprised that there's no black people and they were like, yo, I, get, I need y'all to understand like, mm, this is what systemic racism means, right? Yeah. Everybody's like, I'm surprised. why are you surprised? Like, this is how it functions, is that no one seems to be aware. No one notices it. But, but the deeper level of it is that it is like this weird thing that's happened in the past year where now all of a sudden these Fortune 500 companies have discovered HBC, historically black colleges and universities that have been around for hundreds of years. Now in 2020 and 2021 is the first time they've discovered these places. And that has everything to do with the belief, even if it's not articulated, that HBCUs don't produce top, top talent. And that if we want to get top talent, we need to go to predominantly white institutions to get top talent because only those kinds of institutions will produce the kinds of people we want around here. And also, so you get a friend like your, your friend, I imagine he has impeccable, he had impeccable credentials. He he, you said he addressed impeccable. So oh, he, yeah exceptional he has to be exceptional in order for him to he can't just be average he can't no. just be average like everybody he has to be unusually talented unusually dressed yeah. unusually credentialed why is that well that that as much as i do know it's that's just pure racism <laughs> so the, <laughs> what i was hanging out with donovan the same guy in a conference in New York City. Got him. Sorry. And we 
we saw a black guy get out of a Range Rover. And, and we were in the lobby just hanging out waiting for our friends. <clears throat> and he looks at me and he goes, is that a black, is that a tech CEO or a baller? And I was like, oh, fuck. <laughs> I said, yeah, I would have thought it was a baller. And he goes, okay, thanks for admitting it, Joey. And I was like, yeah, dude, I, that's just my, he was, in my defense, <laughs> he was tall and handsome and well-dressed. And I was like, he's tall. And I'm like, okay, if he was a short little dude, I thought, okay, <laughs> you know, maybe Spud Webb. I don't know, but it would have been like, uh, that was my bias. And it was implicit. I didn't feel it. It just was there. And then he laughed and we, we talked about it. <clears throat> and then almost like out of central casting, I was in the lobby and I was in that sweatshirt I just had on. Right. Yeah. And some nice tennis shoes, overpriced tennis shoes. And I'm in the lobby and I'm drinking coffee and I'm checking out my phone, doing what I'm doing. And then the, the waiter you know, asked me if I wanted another coffee. And I said, yeah, no, I'm good. <clears throat> a couple minutes later, Donovan comes over and hangs out and, and he's dressed to the nines. And the, and the waiter who was Hispanic asked him if he was a guest of the hotel. You know, and I was like, oh my God. I mean, so these are like, you asked me before if I ever seen it happen, and I said no in my own answers here. But now when I think about it, because this just kind of happened in my brain, I've seen it, and I and he 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 kind of he said, "Welcome to my world, Joe." I was like, "Dude," that, and I said, "And by the way, he's Mexican. I'm half Mexican." So I was like, "Dude, like you you get you get shit too for being Mexican. So why are you giving this guy shit?" Right? It was just it was just there, and it was it was awful. But one thing you said about. Um, HSBC schools, historically yeah. black colleges. Your yeah. dad yes. went to Howard, correct? Yes, he did. Yes, he did. And and when you talk in the book, and this is from memory, but you talked about he never had any cross re, cross racial relationships with white people. I mean, he knew my. I, I would watch him talk in my my basketball and soccer games. Like he he would talk to the other white parents, but, but I mean, in his career. So like as an engineer and as a student, he was pretty much just within that black community. And part of your narrative and part of Ta-Nehisi Coates was that networks are unbelievably important in the business world, in getting to the next step because all of those people and parts, and that's actually the, we know this about business school. It is, if you go to Wharton, it's not how much you learn. <laughs> it's, it's the young men and women that you're surrounding yourself with who are going to go do amazing things, right? Whether it's Stanford, Wharton, Harvard, whatever it is. And the historically black colleges have been in the news a lot because of this. And and how do you think how do you think corporate America can work closer with them than they have been? Or what are they, what are they doing on that front? I mean, so I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm I have some insight, but I don't have a ton to say. I think like what I'm hearing is that, you know, from at least a couple of the schools that I have some connections to, it's like there is more interest from more focus on recruiting these young people than ever before. So like, that's not a question, right? That's happened. Okay. That's good. I think um, what I, what I'm, and I don't, and I'm, what I'm hoping is that it is not just all going, they're not all focusing on Howard and this sort of, because there are, there are, I think in the, in the upwards of 78, there are a number. Yeah. Of so it's like, you got to be, 
be, be broad and don't just all put up our attention. Go, don't everybody just flock to Howard University because that's the one you heard about the news. Right. And all just flock to the one that's, because that's what we tend to do. We have this tendency to think, well, it's, it, it's still fu- functionally to me, it's still connected to this notion that there's a short supply of talent, but it is limited supply of talent. Right. Don't believe that. I just don't right. believe that. I feel like by and large, you know, for the vast majority of jobs in, in our society, I think a lot of people can do that. There are very, there are specific jobs that require, of course, very unique expertise. It's like the old Trading Places movie, you know, when, when Eddie Murphy, like he learns how to be a broker. Like, it, there's like that movie's like made in 1982, and I laughed at it as a little kid and I thought it was funny. But I mean, in a way, it's actually really brilliant because it's saying something incredibly important about how our society is organized and that we know to be true, which is so much of this, the way that we have allowed this sort of this, 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 this disparities to persist is yeah. through certain um, ideas that we've allowed to continue to prol- proliferate around limited supply of talent. But functionally, it's about how do we maintain advantages for white people? How do we maintain the advantages for white people? So, part of, so institutions are a part of that. Harvard's a part of that. The Yales of the world are part of that. The Princeton's. All those institutions are part of maintaining hegemon, an idea that there are certain people who are more talented than others, more, you know, more, more merit, have higher, more meritorious than others. And that those people should have the most power and authority in our society. If you look at the Atlantic magazine, you look at the, you know, the, the president, President Biden's, um, you know, his team at the White, you see an over-representation of people who have attended these very elite colleges, which isn't to knock them because they're amazing people and they've done great work. But it's what's, what's happened though is that those institutions almost, if they serve a very important function of being a sort of like a, um, a filtering system so that companies don't have to think too deeply and don't have to look too hard. They can go to their tried and true again and again, and they can find people who have been already socialized, educated right. to fit right in to their structure. And I don't blame them for that because efficiency purposes, it works. I know where to go to do my recruiting. I know these people are going to come in the door with certain skills already placed. I don't have to do much upskilling. I can get blah, 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 blah. But I think what it does do at the end of the day is it continues to exacerbate this challenge we're trying to address in our society, which is how do we disperse opportunity more and more sort of more, you know, more equitably? How do we bring more people in and give more people an opportunity? You know, and if we don't really think about how we're going to disrupt that stuff, then we're never going to really get to the heart of, you know, you know, what does it mean to really live in a just society? And that's hard work. And I know it's not easy to do. And I know there's a lot of anxiety for a parent who's like, I'm paying to send my kid to these. Like, I went to Sidwell Friends. It cost $50,000 to go to, to send a kid to Sidwell Friends at this point. This yeah. is, parents are not paying, to your point, they're not paying for, strictly for an education there. They don't believe that necessarily the teachers are $50,000 worth more, 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 more talented than the teacher in the public school. They believe that that network is going to provide their young person opportunities that they would not have in another place. And I get that. But what we're doing is participating in a cycle of inequality by doing that. And I know it's hard to think about each individual's decisions in that way, but each individual's decisions, they come together and they, make a, they have a cumulative effect. Let's talk about Sidwell for a sec, because you just brought it up. You can educate the listeners. I have 17, by the way, so I don't want to blow your mind. With, I don't want to scare you with how many people listen to my podcast, but I have 17 Ooh. subscribers. 
I just got another one yesterday. So Sidwell, and I have a quote here. You wrote, Sidwell was a safe house where my dad could stash me until college. That was one of your quotes. Why don't you tell me about that school, how you got in, why your father wanted you there, and your experience? Because it was telling. I mean, it was, yeah. So tell us about Sidwell and what that means to you and how, what it meant to your dad. Yeah. Um, And I always start by saying, listen, you know, I I have deep love for for Sidwell. You know, um, I've done some work with them. I've been connected with the community over the past year. You know, it's, it's gone through and it's, unlike a lot of institutions, it's been willing to take the hard look at itself and really be open to the sort of critical feedback that students and alum like myself are providing and embrace that and, and, and really want to do better. And, and as a matter of fact, in many ways, they are doing better. And I just want to just put that out there. So, you know, when I'm growing up in D.C., Washington, D.C., you know, there's a, there are a number of independent schools, like in any city, there's a number of independent schools that are regarded as sort of the places where you might send your child if you have the affluence to do so, or maybe there's a tuition support and financial assistance. But these institutions are, there's like a, a loose, cons- they're like a, a loose confederation of schools that kind of are connected and they end up being, you know, breeding grounds for people to who are, you know, going to elevate into positions of you know, local, regional, and national authority. There are currently two Supreme Court justices, I believe, actually I know to be true, who are graduates of Georgetown Prep, which is a nearby and adjacent school to Sidwell. Georgetown Preparatory School is a school um, played in the same conference as Sidwell, like you know, kind of. You know, you despise them because in their little world, you hate anybody who's, but in the, in the broader world, you understand that they're kind of like, they're, you know, if you were to meet a person from that school out in the world, you'd be like, oh, well, we kind of know, I, I know your story, you know mine. Yeah. But it's telling that two Supreme Court justices can trace their, trace their education back to a school like Georgetown Prep or that Sidwell is a school that, you know, the, the Clintons and the Obamas sent their children to, you know, yeah, because, yeah. I mean, this, so it's that kind of school where people do that in their children there. My father, I think, I don't know if it was the specifically, because at that time, Sidwell, I think it's become more of a prestige thing. At that time, when I was growing up, Sidwell was perceived as the independent school that was a little bit different because it was a Quaker school and it was a little crunchy, meaning like, you know, it was like kind of like, you know, it's been time in the woods. You, you know, you, t- you call your teachers by the first name. It was like a little bit of a, of a uh, Emersonian experiment or kind of John Dewey you know, <laughs> sort of school that's designed to do this stimulation of creative, of critical and independent thinking. So my dad, he had already, he'd always aspired, seen himself in that light anyway. Like, I think he would have, in his own, if he had had his own druthers and he had come up in a different time in America, you know, he would have probably made very different choices about how his life showed up. He happened to come up, he was the first person in his family to go to college. So being an engineer was a very practical decision for him. It was a way to make a living, to do something that had meaningful and use in society and purpose in society. He was good at that. So that, that was why he did it. But I think if he had his druthers, he'd have been an artist. And I was just going to ask, did he do it because he loved it or do it because he knew how he could support a family? So he could support a family. And yeah. I think good enough at it that he could do that. But you know, he also wanted to be, he wanted to be, he, he was a philosopher. He had a lot, he had a mind that wanted to do other things, but it okay. his time period, that wasn't really available to him. And I don't right. think he have seen that as a responsible decision. But I think when, when I came along, um, you know, he had the resources to do something, to make a different choice. There were people in our neighborhood, other black families in our neighborhood who would also send their children to Sidwell. And he also recognized that Washington, D.C. at that time 
was being overrun by by crack, by crack right, cocaine. Right. It's a very, very real thing. The late 80s in New York in DC were a very dangerous time for, for a young, a young kid of color, a young black kid. I have a lot of I have friends who but my buddy Paul Simmons, I'll never forget this kid, 15 years old, he got stabbed at a party. He was one of my best friends, got stabbed, you know, died. My friend oh, my friend Weenie got 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 you know killed, murdered, and then burned to death. Like this is a kid I used to hang out on the weekends, but this is my boy. This isn't just like some dude I kind of knew. Right. This is my best friend in my whole entire my my best friend in childhood, you know, a middle class kid who decided he wanted to be a drug dealer because of peer pressure and ends up being shot in the back twice when he's 18 years old and is never able to fully walk again. And then he ends up spending the next 25 years of his life. And I believe he's still actually in and out of jail. I know he is because I had to cut, I had to cut him out of my life because he was putting me in too many, too many dangerous situations. Mm. And I love this man. This is my homie. Yeah. So his life was completely derailed. And my father had the wherewithal to think of and to put me in a position to go to a school that would put me in a protected space because Sidwell was in the right zip code yeah. and I would be surrounded by white kids who he knew will put me in a protective space. So yes, there was going to be challenges that I had to navigate there. But in the grand scheme of things, it was better for me to be there than to me to be in another environment where I would have been exposed to a lot of other elements that made it, made it difficult. I could have made it through, sure. I'm sure it made it, but there was, it was risk involved. And he made yeah. a choice. And I'm, I'm, I'm appreciative of that choice. My life is a testament to that choice, but it was a choice that also created some different, hard, some different unforeseeable hardships that, he couldn't have known about. Well, that we can talk about. There's a couple that I gleaned from this. One quote that I, one paragraph, you said, I was a huge Marvel Comics nerd. So to me, it felt as if I'd entered Professor Xavier's school for gifted youngsters. If you recall, the diversity aim of the moment was a melting pot. It's one of the terms that the 80s and 90s, tolerance being another, that have since been discredited, abandoned, and replaced with woke updates. Yeah. So a couple things there. I, I love Marvel. <laughs> so anything that mentions Marvel, I'm like, oh, it's fantastic. My kids love it. Uh, I think that they, there's a lot of wonderful metaphor within yeah. Marvel comics, oh. right? Um, but what I didn't get, what did you mean by woke updates? What does I that mean, mean to you? You know, you can't use the word in, in, um, in serious conversation, you can't use the word tolerance anymore. Because what does okay. it mean? Tolerate. Oh, so you're going to just tolerate me now. Oh, you're tolerant yeah. of me. Okay. Thank you for being tolerant. Of you. <laughs> um, yeah. you know, melting pot. Oh, so we're just going to all melt into whose pot? Whose right. pot are we melting into? Okay. Who gets to define what this pot is? And what does this melting require of me? Does it require me to give up parts and attributes of my, of my culture? Probably that's the case. You know, um, multiculturalism is a very nice way of... Uh, yeah. It's like a, it's forget the term. It's a kind of a whitewashing of what the civil rights movement was really trying to, to trying to do. Like multiculturalism is just, is like a celebration of of all the different ways in which we show up in the world. Which in one way is great, but if it's always at the expense of people of color, meaning I, my multiculturalism means I have to blend into, you know, what has been defined by and who is you know to blend into an environment that white people are constantly defining the rules of engagement around. Mm -hmm. That's not multiculturalism to me, actually. Right. It's still a, it's still a culture. It's like you, the acceptable parts of my culture get to fit in. So when you think about like rap music, for instance, like in the nineties, like there was a kind of rap music that could be acceptable. Right. It was the main. NWA was not. (laughs) Not Right. Revisionist history now 
NWA is the greatest thing ever. People all want to be about NWA. Exactly. But it's a powerful thing. At the time, yeah. it was not. Oh, no. Albums banned. Yeah, it was banned. Yeah. You know, Ice-T is, you know, he's, he's, he's a sort of beloved, you know, caricature of himself in some ways, but he's a beloved character. But at the time, when you're talking about, like, when he had Body Count as an album, yeah. Body Count, you're yeah. talking about, you know, killing cops. Like, that was not something that was palatable by the mainstream. So no. it's a recognition that our language has evolved and it will continue to evolve. I'm, okay. I, I have a, my, my colleagues now, we have a term, a terms document that we use for, and we're constantly having to update it because new terms are constantly being added yes. and, and the terms that seem, even the word woke, people don't even use the word woke anymore. You use the well, word, now it's a pejorative. So, pejorative. And, and, and it can go, and, and by the way, the, that is part of, just to be clear with everyone on the, all my 17 listeners is that if I have, there's 8% fringe on the left that drive me crazy. (laughs) And then there's the 8% that stormed the Capitol on January 6th. I don't think I have, I have no more patience for either of those folks. So I try to at least talk to the independent, the 85% of us out there that is like, okay, can I just, can we just learn? Can we ask questions? Can we be open-minded? And that, that's where, and I'll get into the woke, pejorative comment later because they're hurting the overall cause for so many reasons. But one thing you have here that really surprised me about your experience at Sidwell was the soup kitchen volunteer experience. Oh yeah. Yeah. And, and I'll just read this because I don't, it's your prose is wonderful. So none of us had any education on job discrimination, housing discrimination, the cycle of poverty or the mental health crises. No one told us in the preceding years that Ronald Reagan had cut funding for low-income housing, job programs, and mental health institutions, all resulting in a massive rise in homelessness that he once had the temerity to say was by choice. And then he created the fiction of the black welfare queen. That's a big piece of our history that no one talked. Well, actually, it is often talked about as far as the mental institutions and cutting (laughs) funding. And that's what took place with this just maelstrom of of sadness and homelessness and people that should not be on the street. But I think the bigger piece that hit me was that when you guys went to the soup kitchens as part of your Sidwell experience, you said that as a child, seeing my people in such a vulnerable and exposed condition in front of my classmates was embarrassing. So talk about that for me because that this hit hard too. Yeah. It produces incredible amount of shame. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like I'm going to your community and seeing people who look like you in such a vulnerable right. position. So when so what's happening is, um, you know, we're we're being structured to understand that the problem is in our society one that um, our job as the privileged few is to solve for these you know these huddled masses who in many ways are reeling from a society that has decided it no longer believes that it should create the supports, stimulate the programs, fund the programs that are required in many ways to allow a society that's built around capitalism to function. I mean, I learned back when I was in college that one of the, one of the things that capitalism requires is a reserve army of labor. You need to have people on the sidelines to keep the people who are working feeling as though they can't leave their job because Correct. if they do, then somebody else will come in and take it. That is fundamental. Like you can call me a Marxist for saying that or not, but that is actually how in many ways, if you look at SCAB, you look at the, the, the history of strikes in this country, 
you find scab labor in order yeah. to keep the, keep the keep the you know keep the factory running. And so yeah. there's always this tension that exists in our society where we like we need to have a we need to keep unemployment low but not zero. Because if it's right. full employment, then we have a problem because workers will have too much power, right? We can't, and people in charge don't want workers to have too much power. And that's partly this thing we're seeing right now. Like there is a, a real, like I keep talking about everywhere I go, like this whole idea of the great resignation is powerful, man. Like you got millions of jobs that are being posted right now across the country that people cannot fill. Right. Right. So that's aside from the point, but to back to the point that you were raising around what I was experiencing and observing. You know, as you're 13, 12 years old and you're going on these community service trips, and for me, you got to keep in mind, as I talk about in the book, I grew up in a very black middle class neighborhood, you know, and I had, I was able to, I grew up believing, I grew up at an, at a, in a time in, in this little blip, I think, this little brief moment in American history in which, and in a neighborhood in which the, the families there, the black, white families that were there had, a, had tacitly agreed that we're going to try this thing out. We're going to try this thing called integration out because I didn't grow up in my neighborhood believing that there this. I grew up believing that those grainy images that I saw of the civil rights movement were a hundred years earlier. You couldn't tell me that it had only been a decade, 15 years earlier, that that's what the America that we were living in because the America I experienced as a kid was, I mean, I'm going to my friend's houses and we're my white friend's houses. We're hanging out all night. We're not, there isn't a, a sense of these things. But then when I get to Sidwell, I see this very kind of intentional focus around service and us understanding our role as stewards of society. And so we're going to go to these communities that happen to also be Black communities in D.C. and we're going to provide help for them, which is in and of itself not a bad thing, but you need context. And that you guys didn't have as kids. And I think another thing for me that I didn't have context to, because Reagan, I think, again, as I mentioned, it, that was pretty public. Yeah. What he did and why he did it. What I didn't get, the African-American poverty rate nearly halved 58% to 30% between 1959 and 1975. This is from your book. Yeah. Yeah. The year you were born. Yeah. Similarly, the U.S. Department of Labor found that between 1974 and 1980, business contract with the government raised minority employment by 20%. So we are actually going in the right direction, right? We're making progress. Well, and, and, and I even point out that there's a report that actually indicated as much that Ronald Reagan snuffed out because he couldn't let it get out because it would be too con- it would be it would be a too much in conflict with his agenda. His agenda was to dismantle his, his his agenda was to dismantle the Great Society programs that it established in the 1960s. His agenda was to promote the private sector at the expense of public good, and that is why I find it so problematic when I encounter people who herald this person as such. The hero, because I'm like, you're not seeing what I see. I see a different agenda, and that agenda was very much directed towards um, dismantling the civil rights, the civil rights gains that benefited families like my own. And we saw progress happening, but the narrative became that these affirmative action programs weren't working, that they were taking away opportunities from more qualified white people. Like all sorts of narratives begin to emerge in order to dismantle these things, which is why I have so much uncertainty around this moment as well. Because I have found historically, and I think it's not disputable, that whenever there have been gains by Black people and Black communities, there has been a pretty vociferous backlash that is quickly followed and that many white people will latch on to because they believe that in some ways Black people getting ahead means them not getting ahead. And then right. Time. 
it's a zero sum game, which it's not. <laughs> so huh. another thing you talked about, which I thought was telling, even at Sidwell, which obviously is a wonderful school, was that black history was an elective. Beowulf was a requirement. Yeah. And Baldwin was an elective. And my little running joke to myself here is that if a lot of people are reading this, people are like, you guys were studying about Alec Baldwin in school? Like, because, you know, most people are like, I love him on Saturday Night Live. He's great. You know, you're like, I would love this. I didn't so, think that. The, well, the, that was just for me because it's, if you actually took a sampling in a market research study about Baldwin as a last name, there's no possibility that 90% of the people be like, oh my God, James Baldwin. You know, it's, it, it's just, that's part of the disconnect of our culture. But that was in your school. Yeah. So that to me was really telling. And then I think what, I want to get into because of the affirmative action and 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 I think what I've noticed and I had a lot of conversations with my conservative friends to to come and talk with you because sure. I wanted to get like the take. Yeah, we don't we don't study this in history, right? And I'm a terrible student, so I'm not a good representation of that. But Clarence Thomas <laughs> was something that everyone understood, yeah. and I think that my brother's a lawyer. And he dislikes Clarence Thomas more than any other Supreme Court justice on planet Earth, maybe in the history of mm-hmm. the Supreme Court justices. And the fact that Clarence Thomas was replacing Thurgood Marshall, <laughs> there's just something existentially cruel about yeah, that. Like, there's, it's a great way to put it. It's a great right? way. To- <laughs> it's just like I, I was just thinking, like you fuck off. Like that can't be. That can't be. That's like that's like another cynical. It's a jo- it's an Onion article. Yeah. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> it's, it's like there's no way that you can put right. these two in the same room same. Yeah. like it, it's just it, and and so let's talk about that because here's what he wrote again this is from your wonderful book yeah, I, notion- I love when people have done their work like you do your work so the 17 17 more listeners because i'm talking to a guy who does his homework <laughs> thank you anyway, continue so the, the notion of political correctness this is this is the Sir Clarence, douchebag. Yeah. The, no- the notion of political correctness has ignited controversy across the land, and all the movement arises from the laudable desire to sweep away the debris of racism and sexism and hatred. It replaces old prejudice with new ones. It declares certain topics off-limit, certain expressions off-limits, even certain gestures off-limits. And you talk about this somewhere else. <laughs> I don't have it in front of me. But but the George, difference- I was talking about that relative to George H.W. Because George... Yes. W delivers a speech to the that's a speech he delivers to the graduating class the commencement address. Yeah, sorry, yes. that was W. Yes. yes. And and so the affirmative action piece with Clarence Thomas, talk a little bit about how much damage that did specifically, because even my friends on the right talk about that. Yeah. Where he himself disagrees and Thomas Sowell and people like that, where you're like these really powerful black thinkers. Uh, uh, John McHorton is another guy right now that, you know, totally like when you have these black intellectuals coming out and poo pooing affirmative action and things like that's powerful because it, it, it it gives cover. Yes. Yes. Cover. It gets cover for the people who can't write it, but believe it. Yeah. And they don't really understand it, but then they can point to someone that they look up to and say, well, if Clarence Thomas says it. I have friends who always tell me about John McWherther, you know? And, you know, I think McWherther, and, and is, I think he's a, he's a, he's always, he's been a, he's a, he's a good writer. He's a, he's a, he's a great writer. He's a, he's a good writer. He's a, he's a good thinker. And I think he's, 
look at them. I mean, and this is like, you know, it's no, and I'm not trying to make an, I, I, I don't know him intimately at all. I've met him like one time and he probably, he just, he blew me off when I did meet him. So it was like, you know, <laughs> I didn't expect that to do that. but, um, and I don't think it's my job to try to read into those personal motivations and animus, but I feel like when I see people who have that kind of acts that they're grinding for that long of a period of time, I want to ask a question like, what happened, brother? Mm-hmm. Something happened in your life. Was it you felt like you were not accepted by the black community in some way? Do you feel like you, because he has a new piece out in the, in the New York Times yesterday. It's like, you know, about the performative, the performative anti-racism of the University of Wisconsin students. I think that's the title of it. I, didn't, I don't read his stuff anymore because I kind of know where it's going to go. It's like he's, he's, he's allowed himself to become someone who is predictable. You know, it's predictable that he's going to have this reaction to this thing. And I'm like, does he believe this himself actually or not? But to point, to go back to the Thomas Sowell's thing, and, and, and the thing is, I often find that some of my really intelligent friends who, you know, might not call themselves conservatives, but might lean more on that socially conservative, but socially liberal, but fiscally conservative, you know, cop out, I call it like, kind of like, <laughs> like that's just, anyway, whatever. But I find that that is, they, they point to Thomas Sowell and then they, talk, they point to their credentials, right? They're like, but yeah. Thomas Sowell is a professor at this place and Tom yeah. McWorthy. And I'm like, so that's part of what I'm getting at. You will cherry pick the one person of color who attended an, an institution and is affiliated with an institution that you hold in high regard. And you will dismiss the army of mm-hmm. other people of color who have a different perspective who have, who might not be at that institution, who might be at, you know, at Morehouse or who might be at wherever. And you will assume that those people have an inherent bias towards black people. And they have some, they have some ax to grind or some agenda to push, but you will imbue the McWorthers of the world and the souls of the world with some kind of objective integrity. Right. And like, why are you able to do this? How are you able to make this person can be objective and can be perceived as rational and have a very logical argument, but this person over here is emotional, and they very much, they clearly are politically motivated. And I'm like, this is the that's racism to me though, because what you're assuming is that any black person who has an agenda that supports black people or the masses of black folks must have a must have a vested interest in it, and therefore I trust the guy who doesn't. But maybe McWhorter has a vested interest, like Thomas. You know, the Clarence Thomas has a vested, vested interest in Tom. They have a vested interest in being that guy. Correct. That guy that all the white institutions, predominantly white institutions, go to and put a microphone and say, here, I'm going to pay you for this. Maybe they have a vested interest in being the guy who will always, quote unquote, speak a hard truth, which is what I hear often. They're, right. they're speaking a hard truth. I'm like, why is that a hard truth? What is hard about criticizing Black people? That's been done for a long time. Nothing hard about that. Right, right. Well, so I just find that problematic, you know. I agree. And then we, your book then quickly goes from Clarence Thomas and his issues to Charles Murray. Yeah. Which I remember vividly. I was an executive a salesman at a company in 1994 when that book came out. And we read that across the board. That was a book that was passed around wow. in my company. Wow. Yeah. And, and I've actually, I had to stop using that vernacular. I used to make jokes about, because I didn't really understand the racism tied to it. Right, you know? right. And, and so I would say, when I was talking about my intellect, because I was a college dropout, so I was insecure. And so someone would say, you know, do, where, do you th- are you, where do you think you are in the 
scheme of things. And I'd say, well, I'm not in the middle of the bell curve, you know. Uh, but it was just in my vernacular, right? It was just part of it. It became that gimmick. And that was, again, you know, I, I talk, my brother is a, uh, he's an academic mm-hmm. and a writer and a law professor. Mm-hmm. And so he's wonderful to bounce things off of. Yeah. And I said, you know, what do you think about Charles Murray? And he's just, he's a dick and a racist. That was the first thing he said. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. So let, let yeah. me know how you feel. How you really feel. <laughs> exactly. And, and, you know, it was that kind of, and we don't have to get into his, too much into it, but, you know, his, he believed that black people had lower IQs than white people and Asians because IQ was mostly genetic and therefore unchangeable. And yeah. affirmative action, head start, and even welfare was a waste of public resources. These are yeah. quotes. So <laughs> that's also, and by the way, this whole, as a scientist, it was just reprehensible that this wasn't peer-reviewed. Reprehensible. How is that that anything could be put out as a scientist? Because he's a smart man. There's yeah. no question about that. Because he's a smart How, man. He knew, better. he knew better than to run it. He knew better than to have it be peer-reviewed beforehand. Yes. Because it, it wouldn't see the light of day. Yes. So and how it, is it that that happened? Because that was it was adopted by our whole culture. And And there was, you know, and you, you mentioned somewhere in the book that you could not do this against the Jewish population and get away with it. Yeah. Even back then. I mean, if you did this today, you'd oh. be actually, yeah, you'd be eviscerated. But you I mean, in a meeting, you're done. You can't, if you just, <laughs> like, you just, I mean, and there's like, a, there, you know. Charles Murray says, you, know, like, you, you gotta go. You gotta go. <laughs> <laughs> you, you gotta go. There's a door uh, right there. Yeah. And, and, and it's unfortunate because I think you're right. I think. You know, later in his career, I've read the Char- I read a piece that Charles Murray did around. He did some work later on, and I think not not that long ago, talking about like careers and how some of the what we've done in our society we've imbued people with a sense that everyone should be, you know, a white collar professional. Right. It actually works against the interests of people who would probably both make more money and be better off if they chose different career paths and that we directed them in different ways. It's an argument almost for vocational or education as a thing that we bring back. The problem I think is that what happens is that we, in our society, that would never happen as, as a pure function, as a pure exercise, race would get layered into it. And right. we would see that vocational schools would probably be built in certain communities and they would not be built in certain communities. We would only direct certain people to those kinds of, so that's the, the problem I find with someone like him is that, he's not fully embracing and honestly engaging with our history in the ways in which that history continues to weave itself into our society. So in the abstract, he might be making an argument that he believes to be, you know, not one that is, you know, that is, um, you know, that, that, is, that is a racist argument, but that when you understand that there's this thing called, when you have phrenology, the notion in our history that people's brains, the human brain had been studied pseudoscientifically to determine in order to legitimize white supremacy, you have scientists walking around looking at human brains and saying the white brain, clearly you can see a white, the Anglo-Saxon brain is clearly more developed. It's bigger brain than the brains of African-Americans and therefore, and, and also native folks, by the way. And therefore that is clear indication and justification for the kind of hierarchy that we've established in our society. What I tro- what, he, what troubles me about him is that he doesn't see his work as part of a, li- of a lineage of a larger project that has always been about denigrating one group of people in order to elevate another group of people who, yeah. who, who look like him, you know? 
And yeah. to, to remove that kind of conversation from the conversation, I think is very irresponsible, but it's the privilege of being white, I think, that allows you to not have to talk about how history has influenced our perception of, our, of reality today. Like we can talk about it from the perspective of COVID. You know, I know that there's a lot of black folks who are not getting, they won't get the, the vaccine and some of them are not getting it because of the history of black people's experiences within the healthcare industry and with, within, with, with medicine, whether it's Tuskegee or you know, a number of other sort of, you know, experiences. Now, I don't think that I personally, I'm like, that's disappointing. I think you need to really do the history and understand that this isn't that, you know, but I have, but I also appreciate that that's where those folks at least are linking their, their anxieties to all of which you is know what? history. I, just, Go ahead. Yeah, I have man. to interrupt you for a second because the, the whole idea of that, I just posted this this morning. There's an article on NBC that came out today with statistics yeah. on who's getting vaccinated yeah. because I can't remember his name, Daniel Patrick, the Lieutenant governor of Texas that just came out recently and said that it's black people's fault that they're not getting vaccinated. I mean, it was not like he was, <laughs> you know, hinting at racism. I mean, it was just blatant and it was awful. And so this article I posted because a friend of mine who I trust implicitly posted it. So then I looked it up and I was like, okay, so all adults are at 69%. Men are at 67. Women are at 71. The 18 to 34 demo is 63%. 35 to 49 is 58%. 50 to 64 is 71%. And then 65 plus is 86% because they get it, they die, right? So they're like, I get that. Now, whites, I love this so much. <laughs> whites are at 66. Blacks, 76. Latinos, 71. Urban residents, 79. Suburban, 67. <laughs> okay. White evangelicals, 59. Democrats, 88. Independents, 60. Republicans, 55. Republicans who support Trump, 46. Republicans who support, right? So you look at this, blacks kicked our butt by 10 percentage points. This just came out this morning. So I had, I saw to interrupt you with that. No, I was man. like, I thank you for bringing that to my attention. It's really helpful to hear that because I've seen a lot of statistics that seem to indicate this is one citation, right? So I right. haven't done any actual. Right. No, no, no. This, I mean, I've seen data, you know, that's that's indicated that you know black folks are lagging, you know, as a you know, an, an overall um, in terms of vaccination rates. But I think what what you're saying though around the Texas governor's you know deployment of race in such a very lieutenant, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, I think Abbott has his Abbott has his other problems. <laughs> he has other problems, right? Yeah, got things that. But I think like that just demonstrates how easy it is to. It's like those are dog whistles. It's so easy to rally. Oh my god! It's so easy to rally contempt for black people. Yeah, it's so easy to. It's like it's just lived. It sort of lives below the surface. And so often, so whenever you see a black guy who's got a lot of money who does something you don't like, it just it just it's just an easy. We're like it's like it's like. The fire is always there. The kindling, it's always there, just ready to, to blaze up. Yeah. And you have to, again, you have to connect that to a history. You have to connect it to a history that is around sexuality and sexualization, to violence, to the notion of, you know, uh, uh, insubordinate black slaves. You have mm-hmm. to deal with all of that is still baked into this idea of who we are, how we show up, our role, how we fuck things up for everything, like all this shit. Yeah. And never, we, we don't, there's a whole counter narrative, which is way more powerful. Like, Civil War, 
all of us walk, but yeah, black folks walking right. off of plantations to join the war. And if they had not done so, there's a very good case to be made that we would not, the North would have not won the Civil War. World War II, every single war in America, we get, we lining up to be part of the, you know, be, to go out there and be cannon fodder for society, for the country that has never really given us love. And you tell us right. we're not, still not patriotic. It's powerful, man. Or that we're not. Well, I, that's actually part of why this book is powerful, why my own homework on this is powerful is because it, it's so ingrained. And, and a lot of the questions that I'll get to, I know we have 50 minutes left. I have 25 oh, pages of notes. What so went, went quick, didn't it? But the whole, <clears throat> I wanted to talk about your experience in South Africa because it was the first time you felt privileged, yeah. which I thought was really intriguing. You want to talk about that for a couple of minutes? You know, I, I, I could argue that at earlier in my life, I had understood, I had felt, I had known, like, I think I write about when I was, when I was, when I was 14 and I played basketball in the, in the, in the neighborhood and I was playing and, and I was going downtown to play in the hood, if you will. And, and I recognized that my dad's picking me up in his Mercedes, you know, it was a Mercedes station wagon. Let's not act like, not going to glorify, but he was, he was picking up Mercedes and my, my, my black, my friends in the basketball team, their dads were not present at all. And in many ways, my friends on that team at that time, they had some understandable contempt for me because like, here I am, this kid who both goes to this private school, his dad is in his life. He's got, and I'm like, I would feel the same way, honestly. I would feel the same way. I don't know if, I did not understand that as a, as a concept of called privilege because I hadn't done, the, done my own sort of learning in order to kind of get a sense of it. But when I go to, yeah. go to South Africa, and so I think traveling is so important. It's so important to get out of your context. And to your point, around the 8% of the, on the liberal on the left side of it, who you kind of find intolerable, I think this is also why I, part of that, part of what I'm trying to do when I write these kinds of stories, specifically the kind of vignettes, is to remove the sense that I might be in that category for you. Because I have some sense of self-reflection around my, how Correct. I think as well. So when I'm in South Africa, recognizing that having a U.S. passport and having U.S. currency in a society that has just undergone, when I arrived, is still undergoing the unraveling of its own racist history such that I am allowed to benefit in ways that none of the people who look like me are able to benefit there. That is a jarring moment. Other Black people I am surrounded by are living through and still living through abject poverty and oppression in shanty towns. I am on luxury bus riding through their town, stopping and buying some trinkets, going to nice dinners, meeting with Supreme Court justices because I'm a law student, able right. to get into the various you know, venues that I want to go in. All of these things, I'm, I say, like, I am like, living like a, you know, not a prince, I mean, like an earl or a duke. <laughs> a duke, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but like either way, it is important for me to experience that and to tell that story, yeah. to not hide that story. Because I think that's what happens is so much... Deal, so many of us deal with shame around privilege, shame around with that because we don't want to be perceived as that guy or that person. In our country, we still have, we have this unusual relationship with aristocracy anyway, right? Like we're yeah. both obsessed with the United Kingdom and their, and their sort of royal family. And yet we detest the notion of that kind of thing existing here. And yet we're constantly elevating celebrities to the sort of status of sort of the aristocracy. And we do love generational, what we love, we're like, we're schizophrenic around that stuff. But I think in our personal lives, we'd always people like to identify themselves as of the people. No one yes. wants to really not name the fact that they are 
possibly someone who directly benefits from the way stuff is. And so I wanted to, in my story, say, listen, this was a very clear moment in my life where I recognized I have privilege here, tremendous privilege. If something goes down, I have the, I have empire behind me to support me in the form of a passport that allows me to navigate this world and this space that my people who even live here don't have. Right. And I like that too about your writing because if, and that's just historical negotiation tactics. I'm a salesman. I spent my whole life in business development. Part of which is, part of which is just admitting your shit, right? So, like for you, and you're like, yeah, that makes everything else you read credible. So it's like you actually disarm the reader because you're not judging him. That is where that is where the left is going crazy. Or just you, you're a racist, you know, like, and that, that's, you can't open up a dialogue. You're done. Hey, hey, Joey, you're racist. You're like, oh, fuck. Okay. But part of the problem, which we're getting to, and again, I, I'm not going to get through all of this because you had so much wonderful content. You just, you have a, a small list. When you were hired in 2011, you were hired to write an article about politics in the DC area and how it shaped your community and, and yeah. how the gentrification was part of the plan, which yeah. was, Right, the plan itself was, and it has a Wikipedia page. <laughs> yeah. So give me give me a thirty yeah. second explanation of the plan, and then I'll I'll continue. So it was this idea that because DC became predominantly black, particularly after the nineteen sixties, the result of white flight, Montgomery County, PG County, all these counties around here are very well to do counties, Northern Virginia included. That has a lot to do with the very porous nature of D.C. They are, unlike in a place like New York or even like San Francisco, there's no toll to enter and exit D.C. So, and then it's also right. a state that it's not a state. So therefore, it actually, this, its ability to tax people, even from, you know, who work in the city is very minimal. It's very crippled. It's a structurally crippled place. It's a district. So what it meant was that you saw white flight happen in the 1960s. D.C. becomes a predominantly black city. And then you have this anxiety that exists within Black communities in that city that white people want to take the city back. And there's a plan to do so. And so the plan actually is something that's passed by word of mouth. You know, no one really, it's not like officially written in a lot of places, but it's right. understanding, unlike others that, is, that exists in communities that have been oppressed, that, there are, that the oppressor is out to get us in some way, shape, or form. And they look you can find other pieces of evidence that kind of that, that will corroborate that for you in the history of our society and say that, you know, listen, the dispossession of, black, of, of Native peoples in our country is a very clear evidence of how valuable land is and what, we will, what lengths we will go to to remove people from there, to separate people from their land so that we can do what we want to do with it as a society. So here in D.C., gentrification begins in, in earnest in the late 1990s, and that's when you see a palpable rise and this anxiety around what's going to happen to the city. And it is the most recent census that came out last week. I think it's now, it's, the population is now completely split. I think 40, 46% white, 46% black, and then there's like 12 or 13% Hispanic. Um, people identify as um, non-white Hispanic. And then there's a smaller position of, percentage of folks who identify as biracial and Asian. So I want to sort of acknowledge that. Point of the matter is that, that the city is no longer called Chocolate City anymore. So it actually has corroborated what people already believed. And, and, and I can tell you from my own experience that I moved back to D.C. this past November. You know, I had not lived in D.C. for 20 years. My wife and I were fortunate enough to buy a house. And the lengths that we had to go through in order to get the house, the anxiety that we felt in order to be able to get a house in D.C. because the competition is so stiff 
because people mm-hmm. are coming in with cash offers right. you know, to be able to. I had to write a letter to the current, to the previous owner saying, listen, I'm a guy from the city. I don't have maybe what you might be offered from other people. I don't, I'm going to be, but I, I'm going to take care of this house and love this house. And, and I, we were able to get it. I like to believe that letter had something to do with why, but the reality is that it is very difficult because of the histories of wealth and wealth inequality for people of color to stay in a city like this now that it's become much more viable to live here and desirable as a place to be. And so my article was in my many ways back in, I was living in 2011, 2012, I was spending time looking at, you know, population change happening already. I was looking at a lot of demographic data, ACS survey data, talking to people in the community who were stressed out about this, who knew it was coming. And it was a sense of being displaced once again, pushed out once again. And that's painful for people. And it's a really painful thing that happens when gentrification takes place that we don't like to talk about. We like to say it's, oh, just, you know, people are angry or people are upset. You know, no, it's not just that they're upset. But that's a big piece of the critical race theory in general is that, and this is what I think gets lost, is because to your point, you didn't believe from your writings that there was a plan. You're like, I can't believe that because that, I can't, I understand that racism exists among individuals. And I'm like paraphrasing you here. I understand that racism exists among individuals. I just didn't want to or couldn't believe that it was systemic and part of the culture. And then you said, until I realized, and you got a, you, you made a small list, there's the Indian Removal Act of 1830, the annexation of 55% of Mexico in 1848, the force taking of the Philippines, the force taking of Puerto Rico, the force taking of Hawaii, Japanese internment camps, the destruction of thriving black communities in Tulsa, Oklahoma, the destruction of thriving black communities in Rosewood, Florida, past and present day redlining, the abandonment of black New Orleans during and after Hurricane Katrina, and predatory lending practices leading to the subprime mortgages that wiped out billions of dollars of black wealth. It, that was a short list, you said. <laughs> yeah. and, and so when you look at that, you're like, yeah. And, and this is, I think, a big problem with the critical race theory debate. Again, it's abstract. There's different yeah. meanings. Yeah. But if you start to read, and this is, I think this is the biggest issue around education in general, is because I was so removed from all of this, and in, in most part, because the, my book, as I mentioned, is I was unbelievably self-absorbed, <laughs> right? Most of my life. And I was, it was like me, like, how is this going <laughs> to affect me, right? <laughs> like, it, it, this decision gets me this, and this decision yeah. gets me that. It wasn't like I was worried about black people or yeah. Hispanic people or, you know, I watched my mom get some shit. You know, yeah. we grew up poor and she was Hispanic and so people took yeah. advantage of her, but it wasn't anything like what I've been reading about, you know, with specifically James Baldwin and Ta-Nehisi Coates and, and just authors in general that are helping me understand this. I mean, I was educated like most people around the civil rights movement and, you know, John Lewis and all these wonderful people, but I didn't get the extent of that. And I think that's really where the disconnective piece is with critical race theory is that there's a large percentage of our culture that wants to continue to say, I didn't have anything to do with that. Yeah. I don't want to be so, and I don't believe that it's changed. Yeah. Or, oh, no, that was 200 years ago. I think it's changed now. You know, we have a black president, former black president. We have executive leaders in black yes. culture. We, you know, like, yeah. And that's, that's the, that's the disconnect. And I think that when you, I have a really big wasp in my attic right now that I, <laughs> It's all good. Fuck. I'm going to go and I'm going <laughs> to whack him. 
No, oh, I almost got it. Continue. Let's go. You don't get him. He's going to get class. you. And they can, they can sting more than once. <laughs> so remember that. I don't want to see you get attacked. That'll be, you want to talk about apropos. He's probably like white Ooh. supremacist. Walk. I know. <laughs> don't let him answer that question. Exactly. Um, and then one piece to this, and this is a personal story. So it's anecdotal, but I don't think it's anecdotal in the grand scheme of things. And then before you tell the story, you asked a question at the end of the story. Tell me as a young white male, do you think you would ever have received the same treatment? And my answer was no, not ever, full stop. <laughs> so tell me about the, your nightmare of being arrested and what took place there and how it not only altered you, but it forever changed the trajectory and mental health of your, one of your dear friends. You know, I always start, you know, I, I'm, I, I wrote that story knowing I was going to talk about that story. I had to be okay to talk about that story. You don't have to talk about it. And I can edit this out if you want. Cool. I appreciate it. No, it's, listen, it's, it's, it, folks, I'm going to give you just sort of the highlights of it. Okay. Huh. Interesting way. Right. <laughs> yes. also, it, it is, it is also important for me when I tell these kinds of stories to know that like, I feel um, conflicted because I know what my experience was minimal compared to so many other people. It was, it was nothing compared to what I know people have experienced. Nothing. And yet I also know that it is, we live in a very perverse society where I have to minimize an experience that was traumatic for me because we have such a history and a present set of set of circumstances whereby my, my experience can feel almost illegitimate relative to so many millions of people who've had really, really, really hard experiences, bad experiences, yeah. unjust experiences. So I'm in law school, um, entering my third year. Um, and I was in Adams Morgan in DC, which is a neighborhood in DC, um, which is in the evenings, particularly in the weekends, a very active place, you know, lots of good traffic, we're going to restaurants, going to clubs, out and about. Um, and I, my buddy happens to jump on, he's also a law school student, rising third year student, he jumps on the scaffold, you know, scaffold, simple thing, yep. doesn't pull up, whatever. Um, he gets down and there's already a cop there. I don't know where this cop came from. They must have been watching this already. Probably were. Yeah. Don't know why. He's six foot three. I'm six foot one. We're both around 200 some pounds. Perhaps that was what it was. They don't see us as they lost. Going back to your earlier experience with your, your friend, the hotel, they didn't see all oh, those two law students right there. Right. So, you know, um, two big black men moving around and you know, wondering what we were doing. So our yeah. bodies were already being policed in some way, shape, or form. Yeah. They tell us to get down on the ground. At that point, you know, me being a, a you know a law student who believes he's, I just took criminal procedure. I just took criminal law. I haven't broken any laws. Cut the irony. You know, you can't just I'm not gonna do that. And I didn't ask him, so for what reason? What have I done? And the mere temerity that I have to express my sense of of, of a right that you need to respect and regard is a trigger. And I see this happen all the time at cops. They, they are unable to process, particularly a black man, expressing his sense of having some kind of rights that need to be regarded and respected in an interaction with them. It just can't, it, it short circuits something. I've seen it happen multiple times. Hmm. So, and this is it, with black cops, white cops, it doesn't matter. It is something right. about that institution of policing, which is why we talk about systemic racism existing in that institution, not just being about white cops 
It isn't. Right. Because if you go through that assimilation process in there, you also come out of there having the condition to think that your job is to police black people. I'm sorry, <laughs> but I got to get it. I can't, I, can't, I can't let it do it. So <laughs> the next thing I know is that we're surrounded by pop police. There's cop cars that descend on the scene. This is a number of years ago, but I've written about it a couple of times. It descended on the scene. This is broad daylight. And oh, it was during the day. It's daylight. This is still oh, like I thought it was night. Okay. This is like 6.37 on a Friday, late yeah. summer. So you can imagine, not, not, not much different than now, like somewhat different than not much different than this moment we're living right now. Did you get him? All right, people, I had to do that. I cannot have a wasp flying around my head. Did you get him? Yeah. Book All right, good job. Yeah, yeah. book came <laughs> to Exactly. Um, so the next thing I know, we're... Um, we're both surrounded. It comes just flashes at that point. Like, honestly, it's just flashes. Like, you're not really sure how all, where all these people came from, where all these cops came from, why they all have batons in their hand, why, why are they wielding them against me? How did I end up in an alley? Why am I being dragged out of an alley phone? Like, all of these things were just, I still don't know the exact beats. But what I do remember very distinctly, of course, was that I was in an alley getting beat. And then I remember when I'm being thrown into the backseat of this police car, I look out of the window and I see my best friend surrounded. I mean, it was literally like six, seven cops around him and they're all hitting. They're all hitting. And he just won't go. And I just, and it was like, you know, in the Matrix, you know, how in that, that moment where they're like, he's like the slow motion where it's like dodging bullets. <laughs> he's dodging bullets like he's yeah. just he's not fighting back right won't go down Oof. and then they finally tackle him and bring him down and then that sort of cycle starts this several day cycle that we we spend in this jail together and we kind of go you you're, you enter into the system that you descend and when you descend into the system that quickly that abruptly The, the sort of world as you know it just literally stops. I remember being in the jail cell that night and the jail cell wasn't far from where it happened, but I felt like I was in, you know, think about Marvel, you know, the superhero. I felt like I had been placed in this sort of, this limbo. Like you were like, not. I was floating in this sort of limbo world where I wasn't part of the world out there. And I, everything was up to the decision of these officers who already had decided a narrative about my friend and I. We were, we had assaulted. We were like, so every cop that came through had some shit to talk to us. It's going to, they had our, because they talked to each other about who's in there, who's in the jail that night. Um, and I mean, multiple days. I mean, I had to end up staying in there for like four days. And part of it's because they, the cops decided they don't, they don't they're, they're not going to let us get arraigned. So typically you're supposed to be arraigned within a certain period of time. They kept us, they, they took us to a hospital and we never saw a doctor. They took us to a hospital because of the bruises that we had in our bodies. And then and when taking us to the hospital, we missed the arraignment window for the day. So we had to stay another two days. Because yeah. it was a but then at the end of that last, maybe the last day, they take us into a holding pen. They take us in this big van. They throw everybody in the van, take you to a holding pen. And you go into this holding pen and it is, lit, it is you, you kind of, you, you, you go underground, you come up above ground chained to one another you're like in all like locked with one another and you're ushered into this big cage there's maybe 100 150 other people who've been brought in from all the precincts all over the city 
and they're all in central booking at this point. And we're in a cage. And the people surrounding us have weapons. They all have guns. Big guns. And, it, and it's just like, you start to see how many people are feeding their families off of, off of the, the misfortune of other people. And how we set up this very cruel system that requires both the people on the outside and on the inside. Because it, it does something to, and I always say this, it does something to you if you work in that system too. It is oh, not an environment for you to be working in. When your only interactions, particularly with young black men, are in those kinds of conditions, what do you think it does to your sense of who, who we are in the world? Ultimately, you know, I can fast forward and say that I had a trial, I had to get a lawyer. It was very difficult to have to go through my, my last year of law school while this is in the back of my mind. Well, I, well, I have to go to jail. Well, like, yeah, can I even practice law? I practice law. Like, it yeah. actually, you know, and I, I didn't think about it until I finished when I was writing the book. I actually do think that experience affected my sense of, because I didn't take the bar for a couple of years after that. And I never really practiced law. But the question is you couldn't have if you were actually depending on yeah. Ultimately, like I was, I was, you know, I was able to navigate through that experience without a record, so to speak. So if I didn't talk about it now, nobody would know about it. But I it is important to talk about, not just for my what happened to me. And there's so much that I saw that's written about in the book that I think people wanted to understand more of how I started to understand how the system operates and how that began to inform my journalism and how I started to approach the world and my work. But I think about my friend. And it was hard for me to write about him because he doesn't have the agency. Like I wanted to both talk about him, but not, but not take his ability to tell his own story away from him. Right. As his, but as somebody who watched and walked alongside this person who was just one of the you know, most decent, beautiful human beings that I ever met in my life, just a good dude, to watch how his life spiraled after that. It, this was the defining moment in his life, right? I would I would say that you know as far as like affecting his trajectory as far as affecting his trajectory I think it I mean without I mean he and I have spent time we didn't talk for years afterwards actually we kind of wow. stopped because didn't talk we kind of went our own ways because I ended up having to get a lawyer he had to get a lawyer he decided to fight it kind of pursue pursue a little bit longer I decided to like take the deal that they were offering me but like. He ended up not graduating that year. I think he graduated a year later. But what I say and I write about is that I, I, and I, and I, I'm always clear to distinguish between correlation and causation. What I can yeah. say for correlation was I saw a precipitous mental decline from that point forward. And that precipitous mental decline persisted for a number of years. I remember I would like watch, I would, I, he and I lost touch, but every once in a while, like I would, find a video of something on he put on YouTube and I would see these videos. They were really strange, but like he'd just be playing the drums in the rain. He started this sort of religious cult. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, and then I, I saw him one time years later, I went to stay with him in Ohio for a night because I happened to be in the state. I went to stay with him and he was living in an apartment that was clearly being paid for by the city. And he didn't use locks on the doors because he allowed people to come and go as they pleased. And he had been straight up. Like people would just at home, people would just come into his apartment. They would just like go to sleep, wake up. He had a suitcase full of religious texts and that's all he would do is study these texts. He would fast and he was, it was just this. And, and 
he still was mentally sharp in a lot of ways. It was not that he was, he was still, a, he was very sentimental and his heart was, but it was to see this course that this man's life had gone in, where he is so removed from. And he was, um, his mom had, you know, he had been committed a couple of times. He had, he had actually been yeah. forcibly committed a couple of times. Institutionally. Institutionally. Yeah. And I, and I think it's just, the system, now, and, and I can say that I have other friends who I've seen go through the system and never come out and be right. Never come out and be right. Yeah. Just not be right. Like can't adjust back into society because yeah. of what they experienced within that place. Yeah. yeah, and that's the kind of thing with the question you asked is I've never had that. And and then after a certain amount of financial success in my life, I've never it's that would never happen. <laughs> just would if I was standing out front, you know, in overpriced clothing at a bar, I could be smoking a joint. And I don't think they would touch me. And you need and you and you know that. And that's important. Yeah, I just don't. I don't think that would happen. I it <laughs> I remember my buddies and I, we were in Warren, Vermont. This is in college. Mm-hmm. And we were at the Ben and Jerry's Fourth of July party. <laughs> mm-hmm. And we were smoking a joint. Well, actually, I think we all had one. <laughs> and we were on rollerblades. <laughs> and wow. we were rolling around smoking weed. And there's cops. <laughs> they just pull up on these bikes. <laughs> and one of the cops looks at me and he goes, Hey, be careful up there. There's a lot of people. <laughs> I was like, thanks, dude. You know, and it was like, we just, we laughed and, and we just kept going. And so like when I get to these, and this is a really good, and this is a very fortuitous segue. This part three of your book is called Act. And you have a lot of questions here that I wanted to, as I prefaced, I wanted to answer. When I think about my spheres of influence, my company, my community, and family, what prevented me from taking meaningful action before 20, June 2020, which was referenced to George Floyd? Yeah. My answer was, I am completely self-absorbed. I said that, <laughs> but that's really the truth. I, I look back at it and I'm like, yeah. And by the way, I think this is a huge problem with the approach of CRT mm-hmm. that I'm reading about. I'm talking to my friends in the corporate world intersectionality is one of the discussions. It is when you go into a corporate environment and tell people that they're racist. Robin D'Angelo's book is one that's being bantied about where she does say that we're all racist and we need to deal with it. And I'm not saying that I'm racist, but I'm admitting to me that I'm blind and that I have implicit bias. Like my friend asking me, is that that a basketball player? You know, I have those things. But if I can come to my own conclusions that way, much like you did, it's so much easier to sell yourself on it. Because the way that it's being approached is you're pushing people and they're on their heels and they're going to dig in, right? And that's a big piece. And we can talk about that in a sec. You're naming something that is important about approach to this stuff. Like It gets to the question of what are your goals? Correct. my goal is actually I would like for us to change the society, then I need to understand that that approach is not actually going to get me to change. No. And that's, that's, that's the bigger thing too. I have so many friends on the right and I love them. And on my feed and on my Facebook feed, I have friends, because I was in the media world for 20 years, most of my colleagues are left, leaning left. Yes. And so my friends that I grew up with in more of a rural area, a lot of them are Trumpers and, lot, and a, a large majority of them are conservatives. So I reach out to these folks when I talk about these things and I love these people 
and I don't disown them and we don't, you know, right. hate each other because of, of a political uh, belief or ideology. But that is a piece which we'll get into here because this, this is kind of where the critical race theory itself, and I think for anybody who's trying to figure out what it is, and they're like, dude, you've been talking for an hour and 37 minutes. You haven't said what it is. It's that there is systemic racism in our culture, in our institutions, in our education, in our thinking. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily a racist, but it means you need to be aware that this has taken place. And that's why I mentioned all the things that I mentioned as far as affirmative action, Clarence Thomas, 1970s, what we were doing to move um, black, indigenous people of color in the right direction. There's all these things that we were doing that were working and they're not working. We're not doing the same thing anymore. And to teach this to young men and women is not to say that you're racist and that you, and, and again, it gets into the neo-Marxism piece because that's one of the arguments on the right is that you teach the oppressor oppressed class, people immediately go in and they're now defensive. And, and that is, that is a piece of it because I only have four clients um, now, but all of them are dealing with pieces and parts of this and it's very frustrating for them and they feel like they're on their heels. And then there are certain companies now and institutions that are teaching them segregated. So they're teaching segregated CRT for black people and then white people. And you're like, well, doesn't that go against the grain? And I don't know, maybe you have a good answer for that, but those are the kind of things that I see coming out specifically. And these are not, you know, right wing, um, severe right wing people that I don't respect. These are people that I respect that are conservative who have very cogent complaints about some of how this is being taught. Right. And that's, and so let me get back to the questions. Did I see the problem? No, I did not. I really did not know the extent of the racism in our culture. It's far worse than I thought. And that's just been, because I've been a stay-at-home dad for the last three years, writing my book, I probably read two books a week. So I choose to read different books now because I, you know, I think one joke that I've made is like, hey, did you know there's birds in trees? You're like, I, I just wasn't paying attention to anything <laughs> when I was working 60 plus hours a week. So my whole mind woke up. And so I've read a lot and understood a lot. And then when you look at what's going on in our culture, Trump, I think, brought a lot of that to the fore where people came out from under their rocks and just they're virulent racist. That's not, there's no question. We should trace it back to Sarah Palin. Uh, okay. Sarah Palin. I actually watched this recent documentary in Obama and it reminded me that, wow, John McCain unleashed the beast. Well, he did. And because he had a crush, that, that really kills me. It's like, you old dirty bastard. <laughs> he loved her. He sat under a tree and his estate and he hired you because he loved her. He loved her. That was another. And I like John McCain, by the way. He was of like, course, we all do. At the time, David Foster Wallace, who's my favorite author, went on his bus tour and he wrote all about it. And I loved McCain. I was like, that's my dude. And then he picked her and I was like, come on, man. It was. What has changed such that I believe I'm ready to show up differently? And that's why I said that. I'm a stay-at-home dad, leaving corporate America and reading a couple books. That's why it's in my brain. This is what I put down. Um, what am I willing to give up? My time and energy, and mm -hmm. this podcast is an example. Yeah. That's what I'm willing to do. I'm willing to, to yeah. listen and to try to teach and to educate my friends because I think that's the best way to do it. I think that, and because I'm not a severe left ideology-wise, you know, I think I'm, Definitely, uh, 
I don't know how much the goalposts have shifted, but they've shifted a lot. In I, I used to think I used to think I was a very bleeding heart liberal, and now I'm kind of like <laughs> in the, I, I just moderate in the sense that I don't I don't think that capitalism is evil inherently, right? I think that it's unregulated capitalism is the problem. So let's deal with that. Let's not right. blow up the institution, right? right? Let's let's not let's not right. say that all white men yeah. are racist. Right. <laughs> There's a that's just that's crazy, and so it's. That's the thing. And then what will keep me from backsliding into complacency? Well, I think it's kind of, you know, it's hard to keep them down on the farm after they've seen old Perry, <laughs> right? It, there's that piece to it. I can't unsee and unlearn what I've learned. So I'm, I'm pretty good on that. And are you ready to hire black people? And that goes back to my <laughs> question. I, I, when I go back to the corporate world, I'm going to be a consultant now. So I'm not going to go and run another, help run another ad agency. But I, I really wanted to. <laughs> I mean, we had running jokes where if there was 10 people in the candidate pool from my hiring manager that they're like, here are the people we got. I was like, do we have any blacks? Because <laughs> it was almost like a bias where I wanted to hire them, not because of lack of meritocracy. If they got that far, they had the same, they had the same meritocracy. So then I was like, and they're like, nope. Like, you know, is there any gays? <laughs> no. Like, and, and not that they put that on their resume, but it was like, it, it's one of those things where even in the last 10 years of hiring, you can go onto social feeds and see exactly what people's lives are about, their political affiliations and who they believe in. And, and I, we all wanted to in the ad business, and I can say this across the board, in an industry that is dominated by white men, women are coming up, which is fantastic. There's a lot of powerful women in the ad space now, which is great, but it is not diverse. And it's not diverse on any front, Hispanic, Asian. Yeah, I mean, we're, I think, and I think it's safe to say that, and we see it, whether it's in corporate boards, um, and I think it needs to be stated, is that I think as a society, we are more comfortable with women, particularly white women. Um, yeah. And it feels less political. I think part of what the challenge of race has going instant is that it has been politicized in a way that gender yes. has never been politicized. Somehow race is a political issue where gender is not in the same way. Well, <laughs> no, 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 gender, no, gender. No, no. Gender's coming up. <laughs> They're trying to screw it all up now. What I mean by that is. No, I know. I'm just having fun. Like, you know, I'm very clear that gender discrimination is uh, is a paramount problem in our society. It continues to permeate our other cultures, our society at large, the international sphere, the opportunities yes. for women are not the same. I'm very clear about that. No. But people can get on board much easier because there's not this supposition that somehow opening the door for people of color is lowering the standards. There's this linkage that people have got in their brains around People of color, black people in particular, because it doesn't really apply necessarily to Asian people, could be seen as a model minority, whatever, but it can apply. And it's not, and again, even that needs to be qualified because there's even um, intersectionality in, in Asian identity that I think can change that, how that how that's perceived and is perceived. And I know that there are folks, particularly South Asians, who might feel like, yeah, I can do well in the tech sector, but only up to a certain point, then there's a glass ceiling for me as well. So I want to just mm -hmm. remain that that is a reality. But when it comes to talking about bringing in more black people, and I just like to use the word black people because I think it makes sense. I think a lot of folks were like, oh, well, people of color, say black people. Yep. Just say black people. Why can't we just focus on black folks for a minute? Why is it we have to lump 
All of our experiences are different. But one thing is absolutely true is that we have participated in the society for a very, very long time and have not had, from the very beginning, and have never really gotten a fair shape. Why can't you focus on Black people without you getting upset or feeling as though it's a political issue? Because the conservative movement is much more prone to, has, a, has developed a literacy around targeting race as part of, as both as, a, as, a, as, a, as an assault on meritocracy, as an right. assault on American values, as an assault on, whereas it has not done the same thing with, with gender. It has not done the same thing with gender. We know that historically affirmative action benefited white women more than it benefited people of color. It's just fact. It's not something that's, it's not a bad thing or good thing. It is what happened. And so I think it is much more of a digestible shift and change um, in our society than it is to make a shift and change to really regard and look at how are we doing when it comes to Black folks. It is striking to me how uncomfortable people get when I say that kind of thing, when I just name, like, don't just say people of color, I say Black people. People mm-hmm. kind of like, well, we're doing great on this front, we're doing great on that front. We're doing... Why is there an absence across all industries? Why are we so underrepresented in so many? How can that be a com- how is that common thing theme showing up here, here, advertising and banking and this? How is that? And there's not something, some explanation. And if the only explanation we can come up with is they're less qualified, they work less, they don't work as hard, or Charles Murray, the IQ is lower. And we are dealing with a serious problems in society. Yeah, and and there's a there's a guy that uh, Ben Shapiro. I'm sure you know who he is. Yeah. And he, part of the reason I started looking into him was that he was uh, shouted out at Berkeley right after Milo Yiannopoulos was shouted out. So Berkeley went nuts in 2017 with this whole like, yeah. you can't speak at our conference if you're conservative, and and it just poo poo like Milo is a whole nother animal there but i i actually and this is where i was i was defending ben because if i was if my kids were attending berkeley and ben shapiro was talking i would have said to him go go watch him you need to understand the other side right and i don't think ben is inherently a bad person i think that he is combative and highly intelligent highly educated he's a harvard lawyer was a prosecutor in la has some very good ideas most of which I don't agree with, but I don't think he's a, he's the scourge and he needs to be banned and you know all of this stuff. I saw him engaging with Malcolm, uh, Malcolm Nance on Bill Maher. And they went, and Malcolm was a dick. I love Malcolm. I think he's a great man. I think he's done a, a good job as a CIA operative and, and he's written some amazing books uh, on authoritarianism and he's a very well-educated subject matter expert who I look up to. But he wasn't nice to Ben, and then Ben got pissy and shitty, and they kind of went back and forth on critical race theory and what does it mean. And I was like, okay, well, this is part of our problem. Bill Maher then just said, look, all right, guys, let's look at the facts. Bill Maher said the same thing I'm talking about. He said, if he said, let me read these to you. Blacks earn 40% less. 90% have less family wealth. They live six years less than white people. They're eight times more incarcerated and have high poverty, high school statistics, 72% versus 30. He said, those exist. Those are facts. So, does affirmative action make sense? Yes, I'm cool with it. it. Is it true that there's racism in our culture? Yes. Is it systemic to our institutions? Yes. Right? And Bill Maher is someone that I don't agree with a lot. I mean, I agree with a lot, but not all the time. Here, he's spot on. 
And I mentioned him because he's in the zeitgeist. And so he gets a lot of people to listen to this. Yeah. Bill, Joe Rogan is also in the zeitgeist. Yeah, he is. And he interviewed Ben. And Ben said the same thing. Ben, again, is very intelligent, but he has a lot of speaking points specific. And I bring him up because a lot of people listen to him. A lot yeah. of my friends on the right look up to him and listen to him. And when he was talking about personal agency to black yeah. folks, that was the thing that Joe really pinned him on. He said, well, it's about personal agency. It's about personal responsibility. And that's a big thing on the right in general. Pull yourself up by your bootstraps and do your thing. And if you do your thing, you're good, right? And Joe said, well, yeah, but, you know, there's modeling. Let's, let's look at that. If your grandfather is in jail and your father is in jail and you walk outside your front door and some of your buddies are going to jail <laughs> and you can't say that that's that young man's personal agency. That's not the deal. There's so many factors involved in that decision. Because like, well, he made the decision to get the gun and he made the decision to shoot the person. And I can tell you just yeah. growing up poor and having a very different purview of the world. Yeah. Because I, I feel very privileged to be where I am in my life. And, and the people that I surround myself with and my best friends and the industry in which I uh, had a wonderful career in, it is void of these like you, it, I think you can get to a personal decision metric after you've achieved a certain amount of happiness and understand. It's a great way to put it. It's almost, and, like, and, it's almost like Maslow's hierarchy of needs needs to be kind of brought into the conversation. Like, yeah, because like I now, if I make a bad decision, if I go get drunk and then mm -hmm. get behind the wheel of my car, there's very few people that are not going to be like, you deserve that DUI. Because yeah. you, you have a good life and you got drunk. That's a stu stupid error, number one. Superdare number two is getting behind the wheel. Yeah. That decision was, okay, so I would then, you could point to you like, dude, you made that decision, that was your, but you're not making a decision when you're 14 and your big brother's in a gang and he brings you into that gang because you want to be like your big brother. And by the way, you need to be in a gang or you're going to get your ass kicked on the way to school every day or you're going to get shot or you, and all your mentors, all your modeling, right? And I bring these two up because that's at a macro level these are discussions in the zeitgeist with people. I respect Ben Shapiro. I don't, I don't yeah. like him necessarily. I don't, I don't look up to him, but I, I respect his intellect. And, and, when he, and when he got pinned by Bill Maher on this, he did. He's like, all right, you're right. <laughs> you're right. There's something else there. It's not just personal agency. It's, it's, and that is the big discussion that I think as a culture, critical race theory really needs to, and I know that, we have mm -hmm. a short time, but like you and I off this call, I really want to get your take on this because how so we, we are... I'm gonna stay, we're not going to jump until I... We, got, I'm gonna, we have to extend it a few minutes because it seems really important. And I, 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 what I've heard you say around Ben Shapiro and I think is important to highlight is that you... Hide, and I think this is what I also like, identify in a lot of my white friends is that there's a lot of admiration for intelligence and not, and not empathy, you know, and humanity. Yeah. And yeah. so what I struggle with is that we get so enamored with someone who is smart, who has a good pedigree, who has a good argument, that we forget that this is we're human beings living very vulnerable and frail lives, and that there are any number of things that we can't understand about somebody's journey because we haven't actually walked in. And we lose sight of that in these kinds of arguments we get into. We try to boil things down to how I act in that situation without having full context and understanding of what was really going on. And I appreciate you being able to highlight that fact that young person's experience is probably one in which, listen, 
they also might look up to that person, you know, that, they, that that's still my father, still love my father, you know? And that and because he's in jail doesn't mean he's in the, the, the totality of his being is a criminal. Right. You know, and I think that's also what happens. We do a lot of essentializing here. Because you do this bad thing that is all you are, you can't be a loving human being. You, because we see it, we see it. Right. I see it about like, you know, deficit thinking, it happens when we look at certain neighborhoods and we assume, but because this neighborhood's a ghetto or a hood, that there's no love here. Right. That there's no hope there. There's not, there's not grandmothers and mothers and fathers. That everybody grows up in a broken home, quote unquote, broken home. Like we just, there's a lot of assumptions that get laden on and they begin to you get used as rationalizations for the way things are. Like what ultimately, what so many people gravitate, I think, to that really smart guy making an argument they get behind is it is ultimately comforting. It's comforting to hear something said that then allows you to alleviate yourself of the psychic burden of yeah. what we'll need to do if this is the world I actually live in. Right. This is, it is a burden. But it is not just your burden as a white. It is actually my burden, too. I got to live with it as well. Yeah. It is a shared burden that we have. And that's the whole point is that like, no one's just saying you go, go fix it yourself, white guys. No, I'm not. I'm just saying you need to come be part of this work. And being part of the work means let's move beyond the space where I need to defend and de- deny. But I also know that to your point, it is not helpful if I only come to you from a place of self-righteousness and blame and pointing a finger for you. Because actually, I don't believe that. A. Like I have two friends across difference, too many, my own experience. I don't believe that. I don't believe it's also helpful and useful. Right. And so, and it's a harder job to move beyond constructs to deal with reality. I think CRT is helpful in giving a lens through which to see and experience some of our, some of our institutions. I say, for, I use the healthcare institutes. Healthcare is one example. You know, recently my wife, she, we were going through our pregnancy and she had, we had a emer- health emergency when we had to call EMTs to the house. And I watched the ways in which the EMTs um, responded to her. And she was in, she was in crisis in, a ser- in, a, in this level of pain that she was dealing with. There was, const- there was a questioning and a doubt of the pain that she was experiencing. I was like, oh, this is really happening. Where they're asking her, she's sitting there like, I can't, I'm, I'm, I'm in excruciating pain. Like, are you sure? Yeah. Then she goes to the emergency room, once again, questioning and doubting the pain that she's experiencing. And I'm watching this all happen. And I'm like, oh, this is what people talk about. When, when, our, when CRT argues that part of the problem that we think, why, why are people, why do, why do Black people, why are Black folks more likely to not get the treatment that they need? For, for an illness that is similar to the one that a white person might have? Why is it that they will not like to get the prescription drugs that they might need that a white person might get because the doctor might believe they're going to abuse that prescription drug because there's some inherent belief that oh, white, a black person is going to be irresponsible with this and that they therefore can't be trusted with it or they're going to become dependent on it? Or that particularly when it comes to pain, there's always been this history of belief that black people can withstand pain more Listen, we can deal with fire. <laughs> and I'm uh, watching in this moment. My wife sit here crying, crying. And people are like very casually asking her whether or not I call her doctor, tell her what she's, are you sure? Well, maybe she should try. I'm like, wow. See, that's an example that I would never think. That's, that's another case. And I think that's the biggest issue is that CRT to me, done right, is an education. Right. It's it's 
Because that is not something that I would ever think about, that a, a paramedic would poo-poo the claims of a woman in pain due to her skin color because she's black. Right? That- there can be a questioning here. There's a, there's a disbelief. That's why I write it. There's a disbelief yeah. that what I'm telling you is an accurate representation of the experience that I'm having. So right. that's why I find when I find people question the experiences and stories that black people tell about the justice system historically yeah. have been doubted, disbelieved. And only now that we have all this footage and video stuff, can people start to right. believe it. We've been telling you the story for a hundred, some 200 right. years. Yeah. So trust and believe is probably happening in other systems as well. In the education systems, it might be happening. We can, there's, there's, you know, I, I remember a few years ago, me and Leo were working yeah. on the anti-paddling campaign. We worked on this anti-corporal punishment campaign because all these states were at that time and still to this day have on their books, they allow for corporal punishment to be executed to be um, implemented against students in public school situations. Right. And what we found in the data was that black students were more likely to be subject, subject, subjected to, um, to, to, to corporal punishment in school systems, right? How, how is it, like, what do we, do? they're more likely to be subjected to higher levels of discipline, out of school suspension. How, they're more likely to be funneled into the justice system the, the juvenile justice system, then being given a second chance than their white counterparts. The, the data is all there. And what, what I get at is that what I talk about for me is that decision points are critical. We need to understand these dis- decision points because, yeah. yes, it is not like that the individual racist is doing all these things, but that there are critical decision points in any, any given system. Whereas, wherein if someone has a deeper awareness and understanding of how they could be operating in an in a implicitly biased way, we can begin to interrupt these things. So it's, if it's the case, for instance, in an arrest, there are so, several dis, dis, decision points that can be interrupted, meaning, do I need to follow this person? Do I need to pull this person over? Do I need to go through a search of this person's vehicle? Right. Do I need to then subject this person to an arrest? Or can I, all these are decision points. Should I, should I charge this person with a higher degree felony or a lower degree misdemeanor if I have the ability and latitude to do so? Do I prosecute this person to the fullest extent of their law? Do I give them an out or do I give them a lower? All of these are decision points that happen within all of our systems yep. that taken together produce cumulative impacts on the outcome side of things that show up in disproportionality along a number of our systems. And so I want people to do whether it's in the workplace, think about our decision points. Decision points are like, where do you post your jobs? Who's involved in the interview process? What kind of training do those people have? What are you actually putting in the resume that's required versus actually not really required, but actually could be an implicit way to screen certain people out who could also right. be black people as well. Right. All these are decision points. And the way we start to interrupt this stuff is that we understand what are the critical moments in which our status quo thinking can infect the process and lead to the outcomes that we don't want that are not aligned with our values. Yeah. And that's the work. People got to commit to that kind of work in all of these systems. It is. And I think I'm having a discussion with one of my buddies who's conservative and a Trump voter who was the lieutenant of the police department the, of the city I grew up in. And he said he was willing to come on the show and talk about this, but only with his exact experience. Not, he said, I'm not going to talk about the national issues around systemic racism with the police department because that's just not my purview. I don't want to talk about that. I'm like, that's cool. Let's talk about your specific experience. And, and this is a, a guy that I love and I respect 
who will agree on many of these fronts. But what he talks to me about was when he was told by consultants that he was racist. That was the first step. He was like, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's just that human nature. If you're told something, this is, you're doing this wrong. It's, it's, it is the approach. And I think that's a big piece. And I don't know what your practice does. And I, you know, like I said, I look forward to talking to you more about this. I, I, don't, I don't start from that. Place. No, I don't start. No, I don't think you do. But I'm saying that there's, there's a lot of, that's the narrative out there around the CRT is that it's being forced fed into corporations, institutions, and that it's, it's yeah. just, it's absolutely objectively false. And you're like, no, no, it's not. It's when you say to someone that all white people are racist, then I would say that's where, and I, that's why I brought up Ben. And yeah. Candace Owens and these very, very popular people on the right, when I watch them, and I, I, I reference Ben because I think he's very intelligent, not, and I don't think he's lacking empathy, uh, 100%. I think he, his ideology is more powerful. And I think then off when he's not put on the spot, like one of the things, here's an example of what I mean. He has a big issue with the pronouns. And he'll yeah. talk about genders and this, there's only two genders and this is what I believe and blah, blah, blah. So he got into this big thing with a young woman at a college campus and he made her cry. And she was a trans female. And after that program or after that, after he got off the camera, he went and talked to her and looked her up, met with her and, and said, hey, I didn't mean to make you cry. And he called her she. He said, the problem that I have is I don't like compelled speech. I don't like, I don't. That's what they all say. They don't know. I got it. I got it. But, but to me, it showed yeah. that he's not a complete, a complete asshole, right? That he, he's just standing up on what he believes. I don't believe necessarily his ideology, but I, I, I just share that because part of where we're going wrong, in my opinion, mm -hmm. and this is, the, this is again, the left, far left, will say, I don't want to talk to him. I don't want to understand him. And I think that's where we go wrong as a culture. Because if you can understand where someone like Candace Owens comes across or Ben Shapiro or John McHorton or any of these folks that are poo-pooing critical race theory, then and only then can you ask the right questions. That's just true. Right? I think yeah. that's kind of I, what you I, mentioned. I, I'm is, not opposed to that at all. I agree. I think no. Get at that as, a, as an approach. Like we it have. was perfect for that, and I think that the same way you framed it was the same way that Tanahasi Coates framed his, because mm -hmm. it was it was like letters. It was lettered to his son, right? So it's like I think that that approach is wonderful because it says this is my story, this is what happened to me, this is how I believe what I believe based on this, and that is where I think we have a shot as a culture is if people can understand that these are facts. This isn't hyperbole. It's not that racism exists. It is systemic. It's proven. It's yeah. no longer a debate. What does that mean? It doesn't mean we're blaming you. Yeah. We're just saying you have to be aware that this exists. And yeah. if we can just, for you and me, all we really have to do is focus on the corporate culture, right? That's the, I mean, I, there's obviously a much bigger picture, but for me, it's, it's talking with my, my executives who are hiring, the CMOs and the COOs of these companies here that I'm working with, what are you doing? That's what I want to work on now. And that's where I can say, guys, you got to understand everyone in the room individually. And that's your job. You can't just go wow. and talk to 10 people. You got to go talk to every one of those people. And you sit down with them for a couple hours, right? And just say, hey, what, what are your thoughts on this?
Yeah. What's your background? Where'd you come from? I grew up in Wisconsin. You're like, awesome. So you're a good Midwestern boy. Yeah. And so then you, 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 you start with that commonality of like, cause I grew up in Minnesota. So I can maybe talk with that guy. And then from there I can say, what is your knowledge of this? Like, have you, cause for me, I didn't have any, you know, five years ago and then pay attention to it. Did you, have you ever looked at these things? No. Okay. And that's a very different conversation. Right. And that's what, that was my whole point, Dax. It's like, I think I, I agree, man. I agree. And, and I, I would also add for those folks that do that work, I think it's also important to, to notice for yourself. And I use, I have a lens called my lens framework. I think it's to notice where your reaction, where who you react to and respond to. If you find that you're, you know, if it was the case of the CMO, you're doing these interviews, if you're leaning in to certain people's stories because they might resonate with your own or they might share, intersect with your own, mm-hmm. check to make sure that that's not giving an undue bias yes. in that person's favor. And it's, and I know it's coarse to think that race could be um, a feature that one would make decisions based on. And I think people really are repelled by the idea yep. that they would make those kinds of decisions. But what we're trying to say about it is that it is not just about your skin color. It is about there are, as a result of that, you have, there's a good chance that you have probably had some other experiences that align with the experience of being a white person in our society. Meaning you will have some, even if you're, whether you're Wisconsin, there's some things that might be some points of connection, understanding. This is true for my experience as a black person. Yeah. As a black person, I could be South, North, wherever. There's some things that like, I think we have this thing in our in the black community. I see a black man on the street. We do a nod, and if I don't get the nod from you, I'm like, "What's wrong with this brother?" <laughs> and white yeah. people don't even know we do it. They don't even see it. My, I remember I was dating this woman, and she said, "Why do you keep nodding?" And I'm like, "This is what we do," huh. because we know, know our society more broadly doesn't acknowledge us. So we acknowledge each other, and everywhere wow. I go in this country, everywhere I go in this country, black men know the nod. And you huh. watch it next time you see two black guys. They do the quick nod. It's real I quick. Will. I will. And it's because we understand that it's something that doesn't mean we are the same, but we have something that we share. And we're at least willing to talk about it as a culture. What we would want and what I challenge is white people tend to want to only talk about their individual experiences. They want to talk about their ethnic experiences. Yeah. They don't feel comfortable in naming the fact that whiteness is an identity. It yes. is a racialized identity that has some shared features in our culture that have resulted in some shared ideas that people find repellent because we also have this notion of ourselves as individual, liberty-seeking, free-thinking individuals who are not influenced by our societies around us. So I'm not going to get the shot if right. you tell me to. I'm not going to do this. If I'm right. Ben Shapiro, it's like, I repel the idea. I'm repelled by the idea that you're going to compel me to use this terminology because part of my right as an American... Yep. And that's a problem sometimes because that right runs into other people's rights too. That right exists in a vacuum. It exists in relationship to other people's. And if you are the majority, the tendency is historically that you get to impose your rights on the rights of other people. And what you don't like is when somebody comes in and starts to reverse that thing. And I always tell people my objective in this work is not to just turn the tables. It is, that is not the solution. Now we got black people in charge of everything, or brown people in charge of everything. Oh, right, right. That's right. not no. actually a solution. And well, and no, nor is it realistic. I think that the nor is the, realistic. Yeah, <laughs> the reason that I bring in the, the Ben piece is because 
it is part of what I think is necessary as a culture. Is it, it doesn't mean you have to agree with it. But when you watch how he behaves, because we like to own the libs and we like to own the GOP. Yes. It's this whole culture of owning and I one upped him and I'm smarter than him. And when I and the reason I mentioned him again is that he when he was talking with Rogan, because Rogan's a brilliant interviewer. Whether you and he interviews people I wouldn't interview. I wouldn't interview Alex Jones as an example, just because he's a lunatic. But when he was talking with Ben, Ben was polite and they had a really nice two-hour conversation. And Joe did push back hard, which I thought was great. And then they kind of hugged it out and left. And then the same thing I mentioned with his issue around trans. I don't agree with, like to your point, when he says, this is what I'm holding on to, these are my rights, this is what I do. I think the bigger piece is that we need to understand as employers and leaders and hiring managers and consultants what's out there. Because then it's easier to talk to the team that you're engaging with, right? Because the, if these are the people they look to because they're just too busy and they're like, I don't have time, but I look, look, look at this really smart person and look at this really smart person. Yeah. Thomas Sowell is an example, right? And, and John McCorton is an example and Jason Riley and all these different academics that I was looking at. Intelligence Squared, great to, platform if you haven't checked it out. They have all these wonderful debates on CRT. It's a British platform. And they'll have two on opposing, two on... on uh, four, and then they have a moderator, and it's very polite, and it's cool. Yeah. But what it helps me do is that you see someone on the conservative side, and you're like, yeah, I like that person. Or, I agree with that, because they're not trying to own each other. Yeah, And I think that's a big part of our culture right now, is that yeah. Yeah. right? We're not, we're not actually engaging in any conversation, because you cling to an ideology, and if someone Please. says, you suck, Please. then you just cling to it even harder. And, and the clinging and is... Nothing gets done. And the clinging is in the abstract. It's actually linked to this to bring capitalism back into it, into into the value associated with being a market intellectual or a market or market market public intellectual. If yeah. the ground that I stand on, the thing that feeds me is this narrative and ideology, there's a, if I have if I shift and move from that, I can lose a lot of things. I can lose followers. I can lose clout. Oh, for sure. I think we don't talk honestly about part of what's going on with people and their unwillingness to move and to budge has to do with the fact that they have books to sell, yep. podcasts to sell, a whole yep. bunch of things to sell that make it uh, make it you know prohibitive for them to move off of their. And it's only totally very agree. people who are who can operate in our society who can actually show and move and actually evolve, because in many ways people are there's there whether it's Shapiro or whoever or Candace Owens these kind. Of, they, their entire, not, I wouldn't say Shapiro as much, but like Candace Owens, her entire appeal rests on this thing. It does, because she went from the left to the right. And that's the big thing that she talks about over and over and over. And she had one seminal moment that moved her into that. And I've listened to her. And, you know, for me, she, she's just, she is a business person. <laughs> and I think she's done a good job of, of building this thing. And she loves Charlie Kirk. And I, Charlie Kirk, I have a hard time even listening to sometimes. I mean, it, she's, she's, I guess, doing, she's doing what's the woman's name? Uh, Ann Coulter was doing, you know, two decades. Yeah, very similar. Very similar. And it, 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 it's, it, you do find an audience very quickly. And I think that that's, that is, I guess the point is I, I bring these people in because I, in my homework, I like to see who's kind of rising to the top, right? In, in market research, we're like top box numbers, right? So who are the top box? You know, there's obviously Coulter and, and Shapiro and Candace Owens and, and those that ilk and John McHorton and Jason Riley and a lot of the folks that I mentioned earlier where they're, 
they have a very well-articulated point of view and they stick to it. And I think, and that, I understand why they do it. But I think for me, it's, we can't have contempt for one another, which is what's growing in our culture. The tribalism itself has gotten so bad that even when we can agree on data, all this data, you're like, this is happening, guys. This happened in our culture. And this isn't 200 years ago. This isn't the 1619 project debate. Uh, let's, that's a whole other debate. But well, we're talking right now. <laughs> this shit is still happening. And you can say, well, your buddy Dax is anecdotal. That doesn't happen to black men. <laughs> what do you mean it doesn't? Of course it does. And that's why I wanted to broach the subject because it, it didn't just happen to some kid who was out at a bar at two in the morning smoking a joint, which is what I'd have been doing, right? You were at 6.30 in a beautiful area and you were doing pull-ups. <laughs> and so then you get beaten and thrown into a cage. I mean, that, that happens. And so like, it's very difficult for anyone, even on the right, who would have a conversation with you specifically about these things after reading your book to say that it doesn't exist. And that's the patience that I think we have to have as a culture to be kind to one another, to understand one another first, not necessarily agree, (laughs) but to the point where you're like, all right, I understand that the left does this because that's, that's the reason I get so angry with the left. You look at like, um, and I have it in here somewhere, but there's, there's a couple people. No, it doesn't matter. (laughs) Uh, Christopher Rufo is a guy that I looked at for CRT. Right. And, He's another guy that I'm like, all right, smart man, done a lot of homework, did a documentary where he captured the poverty of a white family, of a Hispanic family, and of a black family. So he doesn't really see the disparity. <laughs> he says it's a classism issue. And so you're like, okay, but I think it, the, as you start to try to understand him, then you understand his purview. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily mean you have to agree with it, but if you start to understand it and then you don't call him a virulent racist in the first five minutes of your conversation, he's a polite guy. I have never seen him get thrown off and I've seen him get attacked pretty yeah. un- online. And he seems like a really good human being. Again, and, and maybe I'm wrong with all these people, but yeah. I think... Listen, not, not to dismiss him at all, but there's been a lot of, you know, throughout our history, there's a lot of people who were defined, have been defined in their time as good human beings who were slaveholders, who were, <laughs> but I mean, it's like part of our problem as a society is that we, you know, this idea of the good guy, he's a good guy, gives people a pass for having really problematic and dangerous ideas. He's unleashed, a, and, and I always even ask, like, what's in it for you, Chris? Like, other people, this is people's lives we're talking about. Like, what? Yeah. What's, and that's why I, I struggle because there is no, he is not having it. There's what's on the line for him when he walks out the door every day. Right. Before he became obviously a target, but like what was on the line for you? Why did you feel the need that you needed to enter into this discussion and try to shift the narrative in this way? What was it about? Were you just mad? I guess why I ask this question, were you just, were you, just uh, you just disagreed vehemently with but why does your disagreement push you to this place where yeah, you need to throw yourself into this debate where you have nothing? What, what is the skin you have in the game? Is it, and don't tell me it's like I think democracy is in the line. Please don't say to me that it's democracy, even though I imagine he would say something. I, I was just going to say I actually think that's a big part of what I'm seeing yeah. is that the people that are defending 
are, are going after critical race theory are, and this is why I brought up the far left, because the far left is hurting the cause of the 80%. I think, I don't, I don't know what the percentages are around believing systemic racism. I don't know if you know there's, if there's an actual number on that, but that's where I'm saying that when you look at, well, Chris Rufo as an example is right up there in the, in line with people like Brett Weinstein, Eric Weinstein, Jordan Peterson, Douglas Murray, that whole, like they call it the intellectual dark web. They are pushing back really hard on the far left. And that is a, and I, I saw this reservoir of clinical and canonical data right? On the far left, how dangerous it is. And there's really important structure there that I agree with, that we're doing, that the far, the far left is doing actual damage. Whether it's in perception versus reality, it's still there. And that's why I mentioned these guys, because in I, my homework... Go ahead, bud. No, no I just would say, I, I, and this is, I don't, you know, such a, but again, you know, in the 1960s, the, the Black Panthers and the Black Liberation Army understood that they played the role of the vanguard. Because what you do by creating a far left in movements is you create space for other people who may not be as far left to be heard. Because in the absence of that extreme thing, the other thing, I even become the extreme and I get silenced out. Because so Got you it. need, so there's a strategic role that people play as extremes in a leftist movement. Hmm. They create space for people to have another kind. So now I can talk about- I never thought about that that way. In a, in a corporate structure now, because I'm tolerable in a way that somebody else who's farther left is not tolerable because they seem too militant, too that's, radical, that's and they smart. cannot even be in the room. And that's the relationship that has always existed in movements. So Martin, All right. that space. M- I Malcolm, like that. Malcolm knew this. Malcolm knew this about his- about Mal- Malcolm would say to Martin, he, and it's not that they had direct conversation, but he understood that his role was important for the movement. Right. Because by him being who he was, he created space for Martin to be who he was and to have an audience for him. So I don't dismiss the black, the radical left because we need them. Even though I don't agree all the time, we need the radical because that's what, who makes the, the, the really radical ones are what makes people afraid. That's what makes people uncomfortable. I don't make people afraid. I'm not the guy who's making you uncomfortable. And I know that some people are only going to change and only going to address the situation because they are afraid that if they don't, they will lose something. And it's not going to be because Dax came in and told you and Ray read my book. Yeah. And so that's why I wanted to speak. I, and I, so I hear your point, but I just want to offer that it's strategic too. It's not just No, like, that's, I've like, never thought of it that way. Thank you. I mean, that, that's, that's a great point. It creates space. And I think yeah. that exists in the right as well. I think you have like the people who are extreme because then everything else becomes more, all of a sudden more reasonable. Yeah, right. That's a really good point. Um, Maybe we can end it there. Negotiating tactic, right? I mean, isn't it a common negotiating tactic that people would use? Like you lowball yeah. somebody so right. that you have a baseline you're starting from that you know that you're not going to go so high, right? That's right. I'm giving you this as a starting point. You don't say no, great. I know that we're not going to get so, but so high because now we're operating in my zone of comfort. It's strategic. Yeah. And if you're moving. trying to get a <laughs> trying to get a million dollars, you don't start at a million. <laughs> start at two. Exactly. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. You know what I mean? So mm-hmm. I, and listen, but that doesn't mean I you've made and I wanted to respond because I feel like it's important for me to respond to the idea of what I think is when I see in the I think on some point I, I would argue that there are people on the left who probably would not even like, why is this guy have writing this book about white men? 
they, like they would, there's probably a, of an opinion that might exist about even me. I don't know what it actually is, but I'm sure it exists out there in the world. That's totally, people are entitled to it. Totally get it. Totally understand. It. What I, you know, struggle with is that, you know, the, the experience that I think you're talking about with the folks that are on sort of radical, radical left. And I don't know a whole lot of them. Let's be clearly honest. Like most of the people I'm talking about. Talk, I don't either. They're not a ton. So I don't want to make this thing into bigger than it is. But I think that I actually want to understand that perspective too, because I think there's a level of intolerance that exists in that world that is more about a lack, a lack of in an inability to engage with people. And I think the left and the politics of the left are just the thing that they have attached to at this moment in time in their lives. And if it was something else, they would be that same way about that other thing that they were about. And it is not necessarily about the politics of this thing. It is about, this is the thing I'm into right now, or this is the thing I've dedicated my life to in my own and how I am as a human being as I go to the extreme. Right. That's more about who they, who they are as human beings and how they show up in any kind of context. They're, you probably look at other aspects of their life. They're probably extreme about a variety of things, you know? And that's, that's not a judgment against them, but that's what I think is often happening with some folks is that, because I've encountered some of them like, oh, you also don't eat anything. You also are, you won't yeah. like it's just a won't won't get in a car that uses gasoline. You won't do this, <laughs> you won't do that. Like so, okay, cool. This is part of who you are. Exactly, and that that's the ideology, and that's a whole other subject, which I think ideology can really be dangerous. And I think yeah. it's because of that that you cling to it. This is my tribe. I need to be loyal. And if I get, you know, if I get kicked out of the tribe, then it, it kind of relates to the evolutionary biology of being removed. Yeah, right. And no one wants that. So. Well, well you're way over. And I, I thank you again for the extension. I, I was just trying to get as much of this. This was fascinating. Again, I loved your book. I, we didn't get on. There's so much. It's so deep, right? This, this whole subject. Whole but, sub- yeah. And, and uh, I look forward to hanging out with you, you know, I one of these days. In I love talking to you, man. You're, you, know, <laughs> you know, you're, you know, you're, you're, you've really, I think I know obviously this is part of your, your trade and part of your work you're doing, but like you really, really are doing your work, man. And I think that really doing our work by like, you know, the reading, the thinking, the exploring, the talking, the engaging with people, you know, whether it's just for the purpose of the podcast or for your own edification, for the work you want to do in the world. But like you are the kind of person I like to have a conversation with all day long. And I'm grateful that you wanted to do this, that you oh, cared for it, invited me to be part of it, that you want to push it out to your 17 listeners. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I say that sincerely, like this, you know, I, 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 being able to put a book out in the world and you know it as well, like it's a, it's a, it's a privilege to be able to put your ideas out into the world to have them banded out by people in any way meaningfully, you know, and I'm grateful to that. So um, it's opened up doors for me, opened up relationships with me, and I hope to keep learning myself because I don't... Yeah. I don't want to enter these. I don't. I hope that I'm not coming across as a fixed mindset person, as a person. Not at all. I mean, I, and that's. I didn't. I also want to make sure I didn't. I didn't put you in that far left camp. Yeah. <laughs> I, I. The far left is is a big part of my research recently around the safe space. Yeah. And and the kids that were attacking the professors, which there was like seven or eight examples of that. I've studied. I've been working with some of those colleges. I know. Okay. Exactly. So like Brett Weinstein to me seems like one of the greatest guys ever very liberal professor at Evergreen College. And, you know, you, you've read about that whole history. Yeah. Yeah. And that, that's an example for me that of, of the contagion 
of ideologies. And, and I even admitted this, much like you did. I was like, if I was 18 year old and I was an evergreen, fight the man. I'd be like, yeah, let's go. But what they did as a group, the collective thinking of the far left, it yeah. was poison. And, yeah. and then it's a whole other subject. But thank you again. And I'm, I appreciate the kind words about you know, me and what I'm doing because I, I do feel good about this. Because I, genu- I genuinely love people, which I thought it's hard. You can't fake it. And I think that's why I enjoyed a very good career as a leader. Yeah, so. as a, because my, the team that I worked with I always felt like I gave a shit. And that's the one thing I've heard. Even some of my, I have one of my coaching clients is a, a former uh, teammate. And she actually said to me when we started, she goes, I just want to let you know that you are, you're always my favorite boss because you never let me know you were my boss. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. You know, a- and I was like, oh, that's cool. In the ad world, you don't hire people and then oversee them. You hire really smart people to do the job and then get out of the way and yeah. then say, do, do you need software? Do you need additional yeah, but staff? In that, in that, but in a lot of other worlds, people like being people's bosses. They yeah. like really they're the boss. They're right. Much, responsive to them as if they are the boss. And I know that that happens. And, that's, and it's something that happens, you know, yeah, we could go all over it. It's a... Well, again, it was great. I'll let you go. Congrats on Xavier. That's fantastic news. And uh, like I said, let's catch up um, soon. I'll shoot you a note and we can like... You're out there. I'm out here. Yeah. No, when I'm out here, you're up. Whatever. Whenever you get to San Francisco, whenever I get to the East, I will will look... I'll look up before I get there. All right, brother. Thanks, sir. So much. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in, everyone. If you dig what we're doing over here, please subscribe. And while you're at it, please download an episode or two and leave a review. I'd love to hear your thoughts. Until next time, big hugs.